And that being said, welcome to Supernatural Selection. I'm your host, Kevin, and for some reason, I was waiting on someone else to do this. This week, we have got Mike the Skeptic. Mike, how you doing? <clears throat> I am, I don't know, I'm a little phlegmy and toffee, but otherwise, so okay. you're You're still a <clears throat> Flemish merchant. Yes. All right, <clears throat> and we've got Mr. David Davis. David, how are you? I'm doing well. I pounded six cups of coffee this morning to finish the script. Um, also, you, you did mention that you were expecting someone else to start the, the, the show. Yeah. Are we starting to like confuse Distraction Hole and Supernatural Selection now? A little bit. Yeah. Just a scotch. We've actually recorded like three in a row. Like, you know, Supernat, Distraction, and Supernat. So I'm sitting here going... Well, it's David's turn. <laughs> I mean, technically, it, yes. Yeah, it is, but yeah. Yeah. So uh, let's do a little housekeeping right up front. First off, we have got a great new shirt design. We have got a Flatwoods Monster design in both white and uh, color. And uh, holy crap, is it great. It It is just fun. I highly recommend everyone go check it out. Uh, the one in white actually looks really good on a red shirt. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it has so, that very retro quality to it. Yeah, no, it's great. So uh, go check that out. You can find it at store.supernatpod.rocks. Uh, e. Let's see. Also, happy Halloween. Mm-hmm. Two days late when we were recording, but also, yep. like, who the hell cares? That's, Halloween, that's is, what... Halloween is in your heart year-round. Yeah, well, our last big spooktacular was sometime in mid-November, so <laughs> I think we're being pretty timely this time. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And also, the big triple-digit episode 100 is coming in two weeks. Guys, a hundred fucking episodes of this. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. We have come. It's been a long road getting from there to here. Well, and you know, <clears throat> to, to dust off a joke that you and I had had in a Discord conversation... Our show is officially two, a uh, little under two Mary Shelleys old, <laughs> and, and at least three Lord, uh, at least three Percy Shelleys old. So Jesus Christ, that's depressing. <laughs> right. Oh man, when I started this, I thought fifty tops, and we'd be out of ideas. Mm-hmm. So yeah, this will this will be fun. We're also going to record that one live on the Discord. So if you want to be there when we record it live and make it with the yuck yucks in the chat. Um, it should be fun. We're going to be talking about aliens again. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this Mike, is the this is yep. the big one. This is the big alien episode. It is. It is. It's the one where we finally talk about all them aliens. <clears throat> mm-hmm. All of them. All well, all the ones that matter. I'm not gonna. I've I've taken. You know what? We'll talk about that in the episode. Mike, are you looking forward to episode 100? Uh, I mean, you know, it's just a number. <laughs> Age ain't nothing but a, I ain't going there. That's some R. Kelly <coughs> shit. Uh, so, yeah, and this week, David has got a really interesting, unique topic for us. This is one uh, type of show we normally don't do, but mm-hmm. should be fun. Mm-hmm. I, I certainly hope so. I certainly hope so. Otherwise, you've wasted a week. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, exactly. Um, so yeah, should I go ahead and uh Oh dive please into do. It? Please do. Okay. So um I wanted to do something different for my episode this week. If you've been listening to the show for a while, you already know that I'm a college composition teacher. I bitch about my students enough. Um, yes. I also have a lot of experience with literature. That comes from me being a huge fucking nerd. Um, yep. So I spend most of my time teaching composition with a focus on analyzing arguments and pulling meaning from written, uh, from written works. So I like to work with texts that I find rich in that regard. Right. Nerd! <laughs> no, exactly. No, this is, uh, this is a little bit of a passion project for me this week. Yeah. So, so one of the classes I teach is about learning composition and argument through the topic of monsters and, to a more significant extent, horror. Um, now, you have actually done kaiju. Yes, I do cover yes. kaiju in that class as well. Fantastic. Like, the, the, big three, the big three monsters in that class, um, we do zombies kaiju and slashers okay mm -hmm. Very so cool. yeah so horror is this genre full of subtext and arguments um and the class i teach uses combinations of monster text and essays written about them to explore how writers um or, or to explore how to write and analyze arguments about what these monsters mean or what they you know how they're interpreted and that sort of thing right Right. This is, this is the old joke about all the interpretations <laughs> about what the author meant by the door is green and the mm -hmm. author yeah. technically yeah, meant the door is green. I actually have that in my lecture notes, that meme. You know, the door is fucking green. So, um, damn it. Okay, awesome. Yeah, yeah. So one of the first monster texts I use in the class is Mary Shelley's Frankenstein, and that is going to be the topic of today's episode. And it's pronounced Frankenstein. Frankenstein. Um, <laughs> now... A couple of things I want to preface here. So, first okay. of all, this is kind of a stealth pilot. And Motherfucker. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And second, this episode isn't a literary analysis of Frankenstein. Okay. I know that I'll make at least three listeners sad and most of them very happy. <laughs> uh, I don't know what the... At least <laughs> one-third of the host is probably happy. Mm-hmm, mm -hmm. So, um... I call this episode a stealth pilot because it is kind of an adaptation of a podcast that I've wanted to do for the past couple of years as a supplemental project for my class. Now, that podcast would be more of like literary analysis, but plenty of what we will talk about, such as science, historiography, and biography, would also be present. Mm-hmm. The other element is that that show wouldn't just be looking at Frankenstein as a text, but would also have dedicated episodes to analyzing texts written about Frankenstein, as well as like other mo monster texts that get covered on the show. This is a literary version of feature creep. Yeah. yeah. Um, <laughs> so, you know, as you listen, please consider what I've said carefully and let me know if you want to see that other show. Like I already have like the logo made and everything like that. Um, oh, wow. I, I would love to make that happen. This is going to be like the mod to our all in the family, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, yeah, honestly. No, because I think it'd be a lot of fun because obviously we'd have some episodes where we talk about, say, um, Dracula. And then me and a guest would then later on another episode look at an essay written about Dracula and discuss what that essay is talking about, how it's done and everything like that. That's right. 
that's a dream project for me. Now, Mike, I don't know about you, but David just blew my mind. I thought it was Dr. Acula the whole time, so <laughs> I feel I feel really dumb now. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, second, regarding the literary analysis, which this episode here is not, we will be treating this novel as a source text for weird topics. There is a lot of weird shit to cover, and I'm excited to dive into okay. it. Okay. So let's just do that. Let's get into Frankenstein and the weird and supernatural elements surrounding it. But the best place to start is with the author, Mary Shelley. Now, like you do. I, I have plenty of sources. Uh, my first source, which is available on Project Gutenberg, is Frankenstein, and it would be the 1831 edition, which is important to talk about for later. Okay. I also have a book called Frankenstein 200, The Birth, Life, and Resurrection of Mary Shelley's Monster by Rebecca Bauman. Um, I think they left a zero out, isn't it? Frankenstein 2000? No, that was Dracula 2000. Sorry. <laughs> um, and and um, I do have a few other... Well, I, when I say a few other sources, I mean like at least 12 to 15 um, Jesus Christ. I don't call them out by name unless they're super important, but you'll at least find them linked in the show notes. Again, our show notes are always available with the episode. And if you're not taking advantage of looking through the show notes, it's really interesting. There's a lot of work that goes into these. Mm -hmm. In fact, a couple of my sources may be pirated books. Uh, wait, no, no, sorry. No, what are you talking about? <laughs> yeah, no, exactly. So, um, all right, so let's... Um, before we get waist deep in the charnel house slurry that is Frankenstein, <laughs> what do you guys remember about it and its author, Mary Shelley? Not much. I mean, I know I've learned something in school, but I've for obviously forgotten all that. Mm. Okay. Well, <clears throat> when I think of Frankenstein, it's almost impossible for me to separate it from the films. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's like that tied into the history of cinema, and I feel like that's a topic for a Distraction Hall episode. Uh, as for Shelley, I remember a lot about the story of this story's creation, mm -hmm. which some of it may be apocryphal. I don't know. Well, I we'll, guess we'll, I'm going to find out. Yeah, we'll, we'll get into that. Like the, the, so, on top of the story of Frankenstein itself having all sorts of interesting subjects, the personalities surrounding the creation of the story are just as interesting. Oh, I bet. So, so Mike, you had mentioned, you know, you, know, you probably read it in high school. How, uh, how about you, Kevin? Did you read it in high school or college? Have now, you read it since? Now, let me back up. Mike, did you say you read it or you learned about it? I believe we read it in high school. Really? I did not read it. Uh, if I, I've got a joke down here about going to JPS and we barely had to read anything. I think I just had the shittiest English classes. Probably. Because I, our, our teacher was not real, our English teacher was, and literary teacher was not really big on reading. Oh boy, that's fun. Yeah. So that, yeah, I've never read Frankenstein. Oh my goodness. Oh goodness yep. gracious. So a lot of my assumption here as I'm going into this, is that, like, most people have read this I book. know the story of it. I know the differences between the book and the films and the stuff like that. I know enough about it. And oh, when everybody has seen a Frankenstein movie, well, sure. I, I can't say everybody, because there's some people who don't watch TV. I have a Cliff Notes but... knowledge. 
right. of, Fra- of Frankenstein. So, so do you? Uh, well, based on your joke, do you have any favorite adaptations of Frankenstein? Oh, obviously, Young Frankenstein. Mm-hmm, it's funny. Mm-hmm. It's also a shockingly moody film. Oh yes, yes. From Mel Brooks. Uh, well, it's, movie. it's in black and white, so of course well, it's moody. Yeah, but he also, re- <laughs> God damn it, he also really captures that old school film look. Mm-hmm. And uh, every, I don't know, it's just pitch perfect in every way to me. It's one of my favorite Mel Brooks movies. Now, have have you gentlemen seen the 1931 James Whale version, the classic Universal Monsters Frankenstein? Um, not that I know of, like not in its entirety, not sitting Mm. down. I'm sure I've seen bits and pieces of it, but we watched it in art class, uh, when we were supposed to be working, our teacher would illegally hook the cable up and we would watch, uh, Turner classics or AMC. So we would watch like Frankenstein and the time machine and Mm -hmm. stuff like that. So, yeah. So, so like, this is interesting because, like, I came into this with the expectation, and I, I didn't discuss this with you gentlemen prior, but I was, <laughs> I had this expectation that you at least read the story because it is, like, a classic, and then, like, even that, like, okay, you've seen, like, the 1931 movie, but the thing yeah. is, like, even if you haven't, you still know a lot about the general Frank- broad concept of Frankenstein. It's, it's hard not to, right, Mike? It's it's yeah, one of those. It's, it's definitely a cultural zeitgeist. Yeah, it, it, subjects. It's like you you know about Frankenstein via osmosis through popular culture. Mm-hmm. And, so, and like it's kind of unique in that it's one of those things. It's like I've never read or seen it, but I know the entire story. You know, it's weird like that. So, so I'm going to throw this out there. Have either of you read Dracula, the original? No. Dracula? Have you I seen the, the Bela Lugosi film? Oh, of course I saw that. How about you, Mike? Um, so... I don't know to either of those. I can't say... You don't remember? Yeah, I can't say if I have or haven't. Now, you listen to Dragula, though, right? The, <laughs> yeah. The Rob Zombies <laughs> thing. Mm-hmm. Right, okay, all right. Okay, well, no, I mean, this This is this is super interesting. So, like, just a... um, I, I'm going to refer to details about the book and just kind of... I'm going to work with the assumption that most people who listen to this are familiar (laughs) with the book. And again, if you aren't, that's perfectly fine. There shouldn't be anything in here, but like educational though. So yeah. Right. And then like, for example, when I mentioned, when I mentioned the frame narrative of the novel, I um, know about it. Yeah. I know fully about it. The thing with the Arctic expedition and everything like that. So we'll, we'll get into details. And if there's anything you guys need me to clarify, please, by all means, ask me. I've read this book enough fucking times in my life. Mike. Um, Mike. Mike. I think David's saying to nod, smile and nod politely. (laughs) 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 Yes, yes. (laughs) Yeah, no, I've got you fuckers hostage for a few hours. So I'm I'm happy. I'm happy. I get to talk about Frankenstein. All right. Well, let's talk about Frankenstein. So I'm looking at my notes here and my first line in this next thing is, as we've seen just by discussing this so far, Frankenstein is a tremendously important work of literature and still incredibly influential. Yes. So, so yeah, we can at least agree with that. Oh, absolutely. Like I said, I've never read the book, but I know everything that happens in the book. Right. Um, so it, it is one of the first widespread science fiction novels. Um, although it is more often lumped into the horror genre, which isn't entirely inaccurate. It's 
a very yeah. interesting blend of genres here. At, at its heart, it's a gothic ghost story, which sounds a little yeah. weird, but we'll get into that. Well, I mean, so yeah, yeah. So I won't go into the specifics of the history of science fiction and horror and where Frankenstein would fit in that relative timeline of the development of those genres. Still, I just want you to know that I could easily spend an hour on it. I do appreciate your restraint. Also, I feel like genre definitions ruin our interpretation of fiction sometimes. Like, stories can be a lot of things, and mm -hmm. defining them by a genre can be a disservice and very limiting to the book. Yeah, and that's the thing with Frankenstein. Like, I could pop off, like, four different genres that the book fits into, and you can make an argument for either of them, all of them, Erotica. or none of them. Well, you know, things can fit multiple genres, but I sure. think they, so I think people get too hung up on names and labels mm -hmm. about things and a name or a label is nothing more than a, a shorthand to right, help describe right. something. It do, Yeah. You don't have to be slavish to those. Yeah. It, it doesn't define the work yeah. or you. It just helps, it helps understand without having to, you know, go all David Davis and explain for like three well, hours. Oh, God, hold on a second, son. motherfucker. Hold on a second. <laughs> when I think of genre, I think of it in terms of tags. Nothing that defines it, but something that can help you to find stuff related yeah. to it. No, totally understand. I just feel like people use genres to be very limiting. That's all. Yes, yes. That, think, no, that's absolutely the case. People do that with anything. I mean, you yeah. know, any like kind of people. label or, you know. yeah descriptor like i've had to stop defining myself as a comic artist or a podcaster i'm a person i do those things but i'm mm -hmm. more than that no all right, that's fair that's fair all right fuck you mike <laughs> uh, you know what speaking of someone who is not easily defined there would be no frankenstein as we know and love it today without mary wollstonecraft shelley that's a hell of a middle name <laughs> or is that a maiden name uh we'll we'll get into that Okay. Formerly Mary Wollstonecraft Godwin. Okay. All right. For simplicity and time, we'll just go with Mary Shelley from here. All right. Thank so you. Even, like anachronistically, I will refer to her as Mary Shelley before she even takes on that name. No, it's fine. That's yeah. fine. We all know. So Mary Shelley was born on August 30th, 1797 and died on February 1st, 1851 at the criminally young age of uh, 54. This is around the age Matthew Perry died, isn't it? Uh, yeah, I think he died at 56. Damn. Yeah. I thought I had a thing there. Okay. So, in the annals of history, Mary Shelley is known as an English novelist responsible for the gothic novel Frankenstein, or the modern Prometheus. That is the full title of the novel. Yes. Uh, which was published in 1818. However, she was so much more than that, with a fascinating history and an equally fascinating body of work. Okay. However, Mary Shelley was also a tragic figure, not only because she was a brilliant woman in the early 19th century, and all the problems that resulted from simply existing as a brilliant woman in the, <laughs> yeah. uh, I'm sorry, the 18th century, 18th century. Oh, right, right, right. Yeah, I gotta fix that. Fucking yeah. 1800s, 1900s, okay, anyway. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah we're, it's crazy. And then, and then I probably did the math on her, her um, birth and death dates incorrectly. So, yeah, like 54 to 56. I'm, I don't quite know No, it's 54. Point. Okay, okay. Um, she 
also experienced uniquely tragic circumstances that made her a goth icon. Okay, yeah, but does she have a shirt in Hot Topic? I am absolutely sure she does. Son of a bitch. I'm pretty sure she does. So, we're going to look at her life up and through the writing of Frankenstein, and then we're going to talk a little bit about where she ended up throughout this entire episode. We're going to take some uh, diversions into other topics, but like really, much like how the novel Frankenstein is a frame story, I'm using Mary Shelley as a frame for the talk uh, about Frankenstein. Right, right. Which is fine. Now, Mary Shelley was the second child born of the marriage between Mary Wollstonecraft and William Godwin. Oh, it's one of those naming schemes. Mm Mm-hmm. And let me tell you, this is pretty much the 18th century example of a power couple. When both of your parents have their own lengthy Wikipedia articles, you know you're the result of a fascinating and influential union. Jesus. Now, Wollstonecraft was a feminist philosopher, educator, and writer. So, she not only rocked two affairs with Swiss painter Henry Fuseli (laughs) and American diplomat Gilbert Imlay, but she was also known for writing novels, treatises, travel narrative, and a history of the French Revolution, a conduct book, and a children's book. Her most famous book was A Vindication for the Rights of Women in 1792. Yes, Queen. Wait, is that still a thing? Uh, Yeah, we'll use it in this scenario. Okay, fine. So, as for William Godwin, he is considered to be one of the first prominent anarchist and utilitarianist thinkers. He was a journalist, political philosopher, and novelist. He is a significant figure in European literature and published two crucial political texts in a single year. An Inquiry Concerning Political Justice, and his other work was... Things as they are, or the adventures of Caleb Williams. Now, the former was an attack on political institutions, and the latter an attack on aristocrats in the form of a mystery novel, kind of like Knives Out or The Glass Onion. Was he also a guillotine salesman? Because, like, if he wasn't, he's leaving money on the table. Right, right, because this is just, like, a little bit after the French Revolution, so. (laughs) So. We need more people like this today. I'm just going to say that. No, like, uh, Mary Shelley comes from a very interesting family. So, Godwin and Wollstonecraft met at a gathering hosted by a publisher to celebrate one of his authors, Thomas Paine. Oh. Um, mm -hmm, mm Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know, we we talked about this when we talked about um, Leonardo da Vinci, like, how small time is. Yeah, yeah. You know, you uh, have all these very influential figures in this very small portion of time. Oh, yeah, yeah. So, it wasn't until a couple of years later when Godwin read one of Wollstonecraft's books that he fell for her. Mm-hmm. They began an affair and would marry to legitimize the birth of the eventual Mary Shelley, but retained <laughs> private accommodations and would communicate through notes delivered by servants. Wow, this is like a shotgun wedding, and they didn't move out of the trailers. Well, it's interesting because, like, there was some real love between them. Yeah. But also, they were both, like, intensely political, like, thought leaders. And who had their own shit. They had their own shit going on. Um, but there's some tragedy here, and the first of many instances. 
Mary Wollstonecraft died 11 days after the, dearth, uh, the birth of their daughter, Mary. Ooh. Death and birth would be something that would haunt young Mary Shelley down the line as well. Now, <clears throat> I'm cutting out a lot here. You know, um, especially about how the relationship of Godwin and Wollstonecraft was somewhat scandalous. Um mm. What I should mention here is, despite his best intentions, Godwin fucked up pretty hard. <laughs> now, he wrote a memoir about his lost love, Mary Wollstonecraft, and revealed a great deal about her life that would have been considered unsavory by a larger society. She because, liked to fart in my face. Uh, I don't know if it's anything near what James Joyce would write, but... Um, okay. So, because of this, for a long time... Wollstonecraft was more known for scandal than by her own merits, but thankfully, feminist reinterpretation has opened up how she and her work are viewed. Oh, that is that is something that um, <clears throat> also happens with her daughter Mary Shelley. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Now, there's no doubt that Godwin adored his former wife, but he did eventually remarry in 1801. Godwin's new wife, Mary Jane Claremont, there are a lot of Marys in the story. I've noticed that. It's a very popular mm -hmm. name, I guess. Mm-hmm. Was another young author. Now, young Mary Shelley would not get along with Mary Claremont. Imagine that, not getting along with your wicked stepmother. Right. Um, regardless, Mary was raised in a feminist environment, um, this is Mary Shelley, um, mm -hmm. with anarchist leanings. <clears throat> Godwin oh, provided where for, uh, well for his children, and Mary Shelley received a pretty rich education, especially compared to many women of the era. Right. Ha however, things get complicated in 1814. Mary Shelley, at the age of 16 or 17, was seduced by the infamous fuckboy Percy <laughs> B. Shelley. <laughs> okay, I need a shirt with a picture of Percy Shelley on it, and it just says... <clears throat> Fuck boy, written in gothic font underneath it. I would totally wear one of those shirts. It's fantastic. Oh, it's like a, it's like a block it. print style. Yes. Mm -hmm. You know what? I think we've got our new shirt idea. Well, I actually have a spin on that, but we'll get to that at the end of the episode. Oh, Remind oh, me about this. Okay. <clears throat> okay. Yeah, I think you already know where I'm going with this, but we won't spoil Probably. it. Probably. <laughs> now, and I, I believe it's pronounced beach. I don't, you know, it's... Let's say it's beach and yeah. move on. That son of a beach. Now, now, Percy B. Shelley was a writer and romantic poet, and that's romantic with a capital R because this is a very specific period of time in art and culture. Yes, yes. Um, so he's a, a writer and romantic poet of the era who had a reputation. He was born on August 4th, 1792, and would, uh, would die on July 8th, 1822. So if you're keeping track of dates... We already see this will be an untimely end for Percy. <laughs> oh, yeah. And also, when it, you said had a reputation, was that a capital R on reputation as well? Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm actually going to put that in the dock right now. There we go. <laughs> <laughs> okay. um, so here, here's the thing. I could go on about Percy Shelley, but that is a subject for another sort of show. You know, he may be best known for his poem Ozymandias today. But right. as a contemporary figure, he, uh, you know, at the time, he could easily be labeled as a personality in quotes, uh, socially, artistically, and politically. Right. A Kardashian with talent. Got it. Yeah, now, honestly, yeah. 
Yeah. Now, funnily enough, uh, while I've never read Frankenstein in high school, I read a lot of Percy Shelley in high school uh, mm-hmm. in our poetry uh, unit. We There was a lot of Shelley. Yeah. Him and Blake. Yeah. And he, he's an amazing he's an amazing poet. Oh. There's a lot there's a lot to like about him, but he's a character. Oh, um, yeah. And the other thing is he got attention and we're going to find out what happens to Mary Mm-hmm. And now there's like this critical reappreciation of Mary, but we'll get into right. all that. But um, real, real quick question before we do move on, Mike, you're mm-hmm. familiar with uh, Percy Shelley's stuff? Like you I mentioned, mean, Ozymandias. Yeah, I mm-hmm. think I read that. I had to read that in high school. Yeah. yeah, yeah, and of course, Ozymandias is also with the best episode of Breaking Bad. So, <laughs> um, <clears throat> yeah, it's um, you know, if we've all, if I assume we've all read Watchmen, I yep. have for sure. Yeah, yeah. So obviously, Ozymandias, uh, Ozymandias, very important poem. Like the metaphor is clear. Um, yes. So look upon my works, ye mighty in despair. Mm-hmm. So what we do need to know is that when Percy met uh, Mary, he was estranged from his first wife, Harriet Westbrook. Uh, here we go. Estranged, but not divorced. Damn it. Percy at this time was a devotee of William Godwin. And in his time with Godwin, he fell in love with then Mary Godwin. Oh, boy. They often met in secret at the grave of Mary Wollstonecraft. My darling, I love you. Let us consummate our relationship on the rotting corpse of your fucking mother. I really feel like this should be a topic we discuss more someday. So, so here's the thing. I don't think you're too far off. Oh, I know I'm not. Yeah, um, like, she lost her virginity in that, uh, I, I'm not sure it was quite a graveyard, but, like, a churchyard. I'm, yeah. I'm pretty sure, um, I, I don't have the source with me, but, like, uh, I've read several accounts that indicate that that's where they consummated. Yeah, look, I'm just gonna say it. If you're a modern-day goth, you cannot call yourself goth until you pull a Percy and Mary, all right? I mean, I know from experience, so... Uh, wait, I, I may have said too much. Okay. No, um, no, we've talked about it on the air. People okay. know. <laughs> um, so the two of them would later elope after William learned of Percy's interest in Mary and forbade him from being in his home. <clears throat> now, they wouldn't be wed officially until late 1816, but they were effectively married here. They spent their time together. They were everything except under the, the eyes of the law. They were husband and wife at this point what about the lord right um well the lord has no place in this <laughs> um there is no god involved in this like they, they, marriage yeah they weren't you. really they weren't really overly religious either well, um I, that's the deal with some of these romantic folks their, their interpretation of god is a lot different so so this is this is sounding more more and more like when uh, gomez met morticia <laughs> a little it bit yeah it does you know, and here's the thing is, I'm going to go through this really weird, fucked up, like, found family. It sounds like something that you would see in 2023. Oh, it, yeah, no. it's yeah. I've heard of Discordian cabals that actually function the way you describe some of this. Yeah. So, um, again, there's just so much here that is just deliciously spicy that we're just blowing through here. <laughs> um, so for a time they would travel through a recently war ravaged Europe with Mary's stepsister Claire Claremont in tow man they, she must have been so wet from all that 
Oh, man. So the, the, the war in question was the War of the Sixth Coalition. Don't ask me to explain it. It's Napoleonic War. Napoleon oh. was doing his shit all over Europe. Yeah, no, yeah. with Napoleon around, everybody was fucking fighting. Oh, yeah. And Mike, back me up here. We don't have enough time or pewter miniatures to do this subject justice, do we? <laughs> I'll speak for yourself. Okay, that's for yeah, but you've yeah. We don't have don't the time, know. but we have the pewter, pewter miniatures. That's gonna be a real weird friggin'. Well, you, uh, you got a three D printer, so yeah. Well, that's gonna be a weird recreation when the entire French army is orcs. I was thinking the, the British would be the orcs. Oh yeah, that works too. If the French could be like I don't know, so Tau. <laughs> so like they're traveling around Europe. Everything's fucked up from a war. It's very gloomy. Um, <laughs> They're, Eventually, they're just dripping with sex. <laughs> you know, dripping is a very good way to describe it. So, <laughs> uh, eventually, returning to England, Mary was pregnant with her first child named, uh, or, or her first child with Percy. Mm-hmm. Now, at this point, William Godwin had essentially disowned her. Yeah. And she and Percy were penniless. And yet they could still travel Europe. Go figure. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I can't, so, I can't, uh, when I'm penniless, I can't travel down the street. Right? So yeah. complicating things was that Percy's first wife, or, or Percy's first child with his estranged wife, Harriet, had just been born. Oh, fuck. Even more complicated is that Percy was most definitely having an affair with Claire, Mary's stepsister, who also just happened to be traveling with them. All right, I'm just going to say, chemical castration exists for a reason, okay? Um, Yeah. So, Mary gave birth to a two-month premature daughter on February 22nd, 1815, who quickly died. God damn it. Dang it, that was my dad's birthday, February 22nd. Not 1815, obviously. Yeah, I was going to say, your dad was old, older than Mm. I thought. This would not be the first brush, uh, brush with child death that Mary would face. Fuck. Now, this death would also haunt her and to play into some of the inspiration for Frankenstein later. You know what this reminds me of is Anne Rice. Mm. Interview with a vampire actually had its origins in the death of her daughter, and that's mm-hmm. where the whole story with Claudia came from. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So yeah. a lot of your gothic horror involves uh, infant mortality. Yeah, and I mean, infant mortality was kind of a universal theme for <laughs> most of human existence, like even yep. today still. So, you know what else was based on human uh, infant mortality? The Office. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. So, um, a year later, the strange polycule of the Shelley Godwin Claremonts <laughs> would be in much better shape financially. And Mary would birth a son named William. Oh, good. Now, we're just about at the writing of Frankenstein at this point, but there is a lot that's going to happen that filters in and around the period of the writing of the story. But before that, let's go ahead and take a quick break. That's a good idea, David. We'll be right back after this, and hopefully without any infant mortality. Hey, David, you know what makes our show great? What's that, Kevin? No ads. You know what would make it better? 
What's that, Kevin? Ads! What if, and I'm just spitballing here, we do ads for independent creators at reasonable rates? How reasonable? Overly. How about $2 per episode pre-roll? That is almost too reasonable. Might as well go for it. Let's send everyone to the contact page for Supernatural Selection. SupernaturalSelectionPod.com slash contact? Exactly. Just have them scroll down to the Advertise With Us section for more information. That sounds great. Now let's record the ad. Kevin? Yes, David? We just did. Welcome back, everybody. Now, uh, before we go on, I just want to say, show you a little bit of how the sausage is made. We had a slight technical hiccup in the recording of the first segment where David didn't hear one of my jokes. So, David, what I'm going to do from now on is I'm just going to take, like, you laughing the hardest in every episode. <laughs> I'm going to cut that and paste it over every funny joke I say so I sound <laughs> that much wittier. You said. So what? Do we need to take like B-roll of us laughing? <laughs> yeah, it's gonna be like that Mitch Hedberg special on Comedy Central. Kevin, you said you said every funny joke you said. Okay, every joke I say. Yeah, every. Well, <laughs> anyway. Yeah. So, um, now we we spent a fair amount of time on the background of Mary Shelley, which um, is fascinating. Yeah, I, I think it's essential because there are critical events in her life that are a bit weird, dark, and tragic that help to inform, you know, the writing of the novel and part of why the novel has the reputation and influence that it does. Right. That, you can't take the lit major out of me. Of course not. I wouldn't dream. So, we're going to get start getting to some weird topics here. Like, weirder than, like, fucking on her mom's grave. <laughs> which I, I, I cannot conclusively prove it. I don't think we'll be able to ever conclusively prove it, but there's been many things written with that kind of, no, oh. it's pretty, it's pretty sure that, um, Oh, her, they were first fucked child up was to begin with. There. Yeah. Oh yeah. So, um, have you guys heard of the year without a summer? Yes, I have Mike. What wasn't that like a, a wheel of time thing? <laughs> Technically, yes, but I actually knew about this uh, being a bit of a history buff, and mm -hmm. I know it's tied to a lot of historical events, but I learned about it from the History Channel back when they played stuff that didn't involve fucking aliens. Yeah, where it was mostly just Hitler. Yeah, Hitler, and uh, like before I'd go to work, it would play historical stuff mm -hmm. about so, like, medieval times. Does that have to yeah, do with no, the Little exactly. Ice Age? Sort of. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so um, in 1816, climate abnormalities resulted in an average global temperature reduction of around one degree Fahrenheit. Now, this resulted in an unseasonally cold summer and a food crisis across Europe. Awesome. Mm -hmm. So this climate event was likely the result of a, a volcanic winter induced by the 1815 eruption of Mount Tambora in Indonesia, which itself followed from the 1814 eruption of Mayon in the Philippines, which followed about three to four other eruptions in previous years. Jesus Christ. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> now, the Mount Tambora incident is notable 
as that same volcano may have been partially um, may have partially resulted in the volcanic winter of 536 CE, which was uh, I think like maybe less than a hundred years after I think the fall of Constantinople. Damn. Mm-hmm. So um, I'm gonna eventually cover this history of like little ice ages in the future as they tend to line up with apocalyptic beliefs. And apocalypses and apocalyptic cults and such are definitely included in our, in our wheelhouse. So mm-hmm. if there was ever a moratorium, mormator, a mm-hmm. moratorium on covering apocalypses, that is lifted. We're totally going to start talking about end of the world yeah. shit. Well, and I can understand why, you know, <laughs> uh, some a unseasonably cold and un you know profitable crop wise weir would make be very apocalyptic seeming to people oh yeah, yeah it's like it's like god just used you as his his role on deodorant you're, you're you just feel like you're <laughs> fucked yeah well yeah i mean that's a thing like frankenstein was written in an apocalyptic period where mm-hmm. a couple like i i think napoleon is still running around like causing wars across europe at this point um yeah. I, I don't remember when he finally like stopped yeah um, i don't remember either but yeah no this was yeah. definitely during some revelation level mm-hmm. shit in europe yeah i mean because during their travels like because mary wrote like travel logs about these sort of things um you know the, the descriptions of like scarred landscapes and everything like that oh yeah um, i'm sure her her fucking travel logs <clears throat> were full of god everything sucks and it won't stop raining Right, and then, <laughs> and then Percy keeps wanting to fuck me. So <laughs> this guy uh, keeps fingering me. <laughs> so, um, and the other thing is that you're going to hear a lot in this episode is that I'm setting aside topics that we will discuss in depth later oh, because yeah. there's a lot of like, ooh, interesting, shiny. Let's let's cover that another time. Yeah, um, magpies. <clears throat> mm-hmm. So ultimately, this climate change resulted in a hazy, cold, and wet summer. Uh, In this gloom, however, the polycule would travel to Geneva and stay with one Lord Byron, who merits no further introduction. Right. Did Byron ruin their manuscripts? So so Lord Byron is another one of those, like, so if, if we said Percy was a personality, Lord Byron was the personality oh yeah yeah no uh i just it was kind of an in joke with me because uh on my uh, one of my discord friends discords someone had posted this like one sheet game of uh you're stuck in a cabin with lord byron and (laughs) you have like these three stats that if you know any one of them gets filled you lose the game and it's just just this funny thing like you know (laughs) lord byron flies into a fit of rage and destroys your manuscripts or uh <clears throat> lord lord byron you know beds a consort with you in the room because yes, one of the stats is scandal so that increases your scandal so, so yeah absolutely that is definitely the kind of vibe with uh lord byron coming yeah. in here right a so lot, um, a lot of, lot of fucking you know, he's also the origin of the the concept of the Byronic hero and everything like that. Right. So like, like, he's an important writer, important to literature, but as we're seeing here with all these literary figures, they're all kind of kinky. He yeah. was also a fuckboy. Yes. Um, like he's a fuckboy. Fuck like, alpha fuckboy. Fuck I like that, Mike. He's a fuck. He's a fuckman. <laughs> Lord Byron Fuckman. <laughs> so, also there, ostensibly, was Byron's physician... Uh, John Polyadori, 
who would write The Vampire, one of the first significant vampire novels during this trip as well. I'm just going to say physician probably needs to be in quotation marks. He was a doctor, but... I was going to say, was he his physician the same way that... uh, in fear and loathing oh oh uh, yeah yeah dr gonzo dr gonzo yeah, was a doctor he was this dr gonzo we'll, we'll get into this a little bit like he like uh, like lord byron had like health issues i i think oh, he okay. had like a club foot and stuff like that oh wow so he, he was, was still like, down but he, yeah but, yeah no like lord byron fuck dude yeah but may but not he, uh, have always been consensual oh uh, i'll just God. throw that out there yeah so but, um yeah. But but his doctor yeah. also like handed out ether like candy. So <clears throat> actually, or, or, we do talk about what he t- he handed out. Yeah. So I would also like to note at this point, it was likely that Claire, Mary's stepsister, was Byron's mistress. Oh my God, this girl! And it was prob. It's not too radical to propose that Mary, Percy, and Byron were involved with each other as well. God. Jesus. And it's also likely that Polyadori may have also had a thing with Lord Byron. God damn y'all. So in fact, just assume Lord Byron was fucking everyone. <laughs> yeah. Like there could be an entire hour devoted to this guy. I have even mentioned the goddamn monkey or the peacock either. Okay. You cannot just mention orgies, a monkey and a peacock and leave me hanging with blue balls like this. Like, like he literally had like a monkey and a peacock you traveled around with. For a while. How like, many pineapples that, were outside this dude's house? <laughs> right. Like, again, this is... And I wish we could spend more time on just the absolutely insanity no. of this social circle, but... No shit. This is Michael Jackson levels of shit. This isn't a right? social circle. This is a fuck polyhedron. <laughs> right? Now, it's also likely that the inspiration for Polyadori's vampire novel was Lord Byron. Oh, I don't think it was blood he was sucking. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, I'd like to read a little bit from Mary Shelley's introduction of the 1831 edition of the novel for a moment to set the scene. This is a one that's available on Project Gutenberg, which if you're not mm-hmm. taking advantage of Project Gutenberg, you need to. Mm-hmm. Quote, But it proved a wet, ungenial summer, and incessant rain often confined us for days to the house. Some volumes of ghost stories translated from the German into French fell into our hands. There was the history of the inconstant lover who, when he thought to class the bride who had pledged his vows, found himself in the arms of a pale ghost of whom he had deserted. There was also the tale of the sinful founder of his race whose miserable doom it was to bestow the kiss of death on all the younger sons of his fated house just when they reached the age of promise. His gigantic, shadowy form, clothed like the ghost in Hamlet, in complete armor, but with the beaver up as seen in the midnight by the moon's fitful beams to advance slowly along the gloomy avenue. The shape was lost uh, beneath the shadow of the castle walls, but soon a gate swung back, a step was heard, the door of the chamber opened, and he advanced to the couch of the blooming youths cradled in a healthy sleep. The torner of sorrow sat upon his face, and he bent down and kissed the forehead of the boys, from whom that hour withered like flowers snapped upon the stalk. I have not seen these stories since then, but their incidents are as fresh in my mind as I had read them yesterday. All right, I got two things to say. Number one, that was a story about the sad-ass boy kisser. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Number two, God, can you imagine how little would have been written if they had just had a puppy? Uh, <laughs> well, they no, had a monkey consider- and a peacock. Yeah. Con- okay, that's fair, but you can't just sit there and pet a monkey and a peacock. 
I mean, maybe. That monkey's gonna tear your fucking face off. Well, and, and here's the other thing. These ghost stories they were reading were fucking German ghost stories. The oh, The Germans yeah. have very fucked up stories. Oh, um, I know. I've read I say the that as like three quarters German, so. Ooh, wow. Okay. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, I got a little bit of German in me, but it's mostly uh, pushed down by the fact that I'm just, I go back to when white met bread, like they said on The Simpsons. Right, right. So, you know, I, again, like, this is just kind of, very gloomy, very rainy. They're telling like German ghost stories that have been translated to French. And um, yep. Now, yeah. In all fairness, I've experienced this when Katrina came through and we lost mm-hmm. power. I had literally just bought the complete works of H.P. Lovecraft, and guess what I did when it was mm-hmm. shitty weather and we didn't have power? I just had a lantern and Lovecraft. Like yeah. honestly, nope. this sounds pretty <clears throat> dope. It is. It was one of the greatest. Uh, God, it was fucking great. Except, Not gonna lie. You know, L, except for also the country radio. Oh mm. yeah, that we were listening to that for updates. God, mm-hmm. fuck and off. Your dad. Yep. Well, during the rainy night in an apocalyptic summer, the whole crew was gathered together telling ghost stories. But let's talk about the drugs for a second. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. From the article, Lake Geneva, as Shelley and Byron knew it, by Tony Paratet, uh, quote, Wine flowed copiously, as did laudanum, a form of liquefied opium. Fuck. One night, when Byron read aloud a haunting poem, Shelley leapt up, this is Percy, leapt up, uh, leapt up and ran shrieking from the room, having hallucinated that Mary had sprouted demonic eyes in place of nipples. So they're naked <laughs> reading ghost stories yeah, and liquor. Yeah, and we'll, we'll get we'll yep. to that. It was in this surreal, claustrophobic atmosphere that Mary experienced the famous nightmare that became the lurid plot of Frankenstein. I'm not going to lie. The <clears throat> eyes thing <clears throat> sounds like some old school something awful Photoshop Friday shit. Like, it's the fucking apocalypse outside. You've been speedballing laudanum. You're in this claustrophobic chalet. Lord Byron won't quit trying to fuck you. And, like, you see nipples growing. You see eyes Look, growing it's... out of where your girl's nipples are. Like, I, I get it. I would run screaming, too. Oh, yeah. It's dim. Yeah, there's probably, like, flickering fire. And you're high as balls. And mm-hmm. her, her nipples just keep looking at you. And your brain goes, no, those are eyes. And you're like, fuck. No. So, 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 like, there are a couple of thoughts on this. Um, first, oh, yeah. while it is not confirmed that Mary herself partook of the laudanum, it is pretty much accepted that Percy and Byron did. I do not doubt, however, that Mary partook. I can't prove it, but when <laughs> surrounded by fuckboys in a certain libertine domain, I would not be surprised that she partook. Oh, she'd have to to put up with the finger banging. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it just it reminds me of the the. Do you remember Kate Beaton's Hark a Vagrant? Oh God, yes. It sounds yeah, she's like to, one of her comics. Yeah, yeah. Just you know, um, Mary like dreading another tedious threesome with Percy and Byron. <laughs> <laughs> so, oh God, pass the laudanum. So so secondly, there's also Percy's hallucination of eyes where Mary's nipples were. I have no way of proving this, but I have a suspicion, given the lurid nature of this assemblage, that the ghost stories may have been a post-coital activity. God damn it. Yeah. I would not be shocked that it was just a bunch of nude freaks hopped up on drugs and scaring the shit out of each other. Oh, God damn it. Look, I'm sorry, but if you transfer this entire scene to a double-wide trailer, 
it loses all the romance and just becomes an episode of Cops. Like, I've partied with people like this. This does not sound... This sounds contemporary in a lot of ways. Look, this is... Yeah, this, yeah. this is just, you know, you know, early 20s goths. Mm-hmm, just replaced mm-hmm. laudanum with, like, Actually, pot. Was he mm-hmm. the 1800s at this point? So, mm-hmm. yeah, it's old school goths. Well, yeah. Right, I'm, right. I'm saying. But, yeah. So oh, I, I, this I, early 20s. My bad. Mm-hmm. So I forget I, I, we're in the 20s. Sorry. Well, I'm, ta- yeah. I'm talking about age. Like, oh. people's age. Early yeah. oh. 20. Oh my bad. Goth, modern goths. Okay. Sorry. No, no, Mike, you're 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 spot on with that. I I was there, man. I was there. Um. So I I also want to note that Percy was likely using laudanum to deal with chronic nephritis, which is an inflammation of the kidney. Mm. Jesus. So so yeah, like again, these are also very sick people. Like Mary well, was yeah. constantly sick as well. Um. Well, it's, you know, they didn't have a whole lot of medicine back then. Yeah. So. And apparently not food either. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Now, Laudanum would also play in the role of Mary's sister, Fanny. That was her um, half-sister uh, before uh, Wollstonecraft met Godwin. Gotcha. And wow. Fanny had committed suicide by overdosing the drug uh, that October or November. The timeline's a little fuzzy for me. Okay. Um, now, it's not surprising to note that Laudanum does show up in the novel and could be seen as part of the character of Victor's radical mood shifts. Granted, it's not the only reason for Victor's mood swings, obviously. He creates an abomination. The abomination <laughs> kills off members of his family. He's framed for murder. Like, again, like that, that enough is to explain like Victor kind of losing his shit. But also, yeah, sure. Laudanum didn't help. Yeah, the Laudanum didn't... Uh... Didn't clear his name. <laughs> exactly. Did not, did not give him mental clarity to handle the situation. <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, as for why ghost stories, well, obviously the setting was perfect for them and ghost stories are cool as shit. However, ghosts were frequently on the minds of those in the incoming Victorian era. Well, when everyone around you is fucking dying. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, Mary Shelley, back when she was little Mary Godwin, was no stranger to spiritual presences. Um, She often found herself hanging around the grave of her mother, Mary Wollstonecraft. (laughs) Yes, she did. Mm -hmm. And some writings suggest she may have felt her mother's presence there. It certainly was there in a metaphorical sense, given the courtship of Mary Godwin and Percy Shelley, because Mary Wollstonecraft, being who she was, kind of believer in what we would call a free love movement... You know, it, like almost like there was a supernatural blessing for the courtship between Mary and Percy. Well, I'm sure she was just a pervert and watching him from the no, afterlife, just no. watching her daughter get it on. So, in Mary Shelley's own words from an essay titled, fittingly, On Ghosts from 1826, she writes, quote, For my own part, I never saw a ghost except once in a dream. I feared it in my sleep, I awoke trembling, and lights and the speech of others could hardly dissipate my fear. Some years ago, I had lost a friend, and a few months afterwards, visited the house where I had last seen him. It was der- deserted, and through, uh, and though in the midst of the city, its vast halls and spacious apartments occasioned the same sense of loneliness as if it had been situated on an uninhabited heath. I walked through the vacant chambers by twilight, and none save I awakened the echoes of their pavement. Now, in that same essay, she later writes, quote, 
There is something beyond us of which we are ignorant. The sun drawing up the vaporous air makes a void, and the wind rushes in to fill it. Thus, beyond our soul's ken, there is an empty space, and our hopes and fears, in gentle gales or terrific whirlwinds, occupy the vacuum. And if it does no more, it bestows on the feeling, heart a belief, that influences do exist in watch and guard us, though they may be impalpable to the coarser faculties. So, um... In her, so her own belief uh, of ghosts feels like a little agnostic, I suppose. Like, like she has not that... necessarily in God, but in a, a presence. Right. Yeah. And like, like the, you get the sense from her time as a child at uh, God, uh, Wollstonecraft's grave. Um, like that. I guess that's also kind of how Mary learned how to spell her own name, as she would trace her finger. Oh wow! Yeah, like again, this is like a haunted goth child. You know what I mean? Oh yeah, man, she would have fucking flourished during the spirituality movement. The spiritualists. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. So, so in in this haze of all this going on in Geneva, um, each of the four would get to work on their tales, and within a few days after much thought, Mary Shelley arrived at the spark of an idea, pun intended. God damn it. The concept of galvanism and the question of what could reanimate the dead. And we'll get to galvanism in a bit. Now, I am going to turn to Mary Shelley's own words from the 1831 edition of the novel. Ah, good. Quote, Night waned upon this talk, and even the witching hour had gone by before we retired to rest. When I placed my head on my pillow, I did not sleep, nor could I be said to think. My imagination, unbidden, possessed and guided me, gifting the successive images that arose in my mind with a vividness far beyond the usual bounds of reverie. I saw, with shut eyes but acute mental vision, I saw the pale student of unhallowed arts kneeling beside the thing he had put together. I saw the hideous phantasm of a man stretched out, and then, on the working of some powerful engine, show signs of life, and stir with an uneasy, half-vital motion. Frightful must it be, for supremely frightful would be the effect of any human endeavor to mock the stupendous mechanism of the creator of the world. His success would terrify the artists. He would rush away from his odious handiwork, horror-stricken. He would hope that, left to itself, the slight spark of life which he had communicated would fade. That this thing, which had received such imperfect animation, would subside into dead matter, and he might sleep in the belief that the silence of the grave would quench forever the transient existence of this hideous corpse, which he had looked upon as the cradle, uh, as which he had looked upon as the cradle of life. He sleeps, but he is awakened. He opens his eyes. Behold, the horrid thing stands at his bedside, opening his curtains and looking on him with yellow, watery but speculative eyes. That's great. She gets this. I get nightmares. Smokey the bear tried to eat my grandmother. <laughs> um, and like I don't know how much of this is her kind of like. Okay, this is 1831. She's had a hard life. Like, looking back and maybe convincing herself that she saw more of the initial dream than yeah. she actually did. Yeah, this sounds kind of like uh, retconning of what she saw. I mean, and I'm not blaming her. I mean, that's how creativity works. You have a germ of an idea, and then when you think back on it, your brain just expands on it. Yeah, and it's, and the honestly, same th- it's, it's how it works with UFO sightings sometimes. 
mean, honestly, it could be entirely possible that she had that, like, the, that imagery. Because, like, in the novel, the imagery is so beautifully, horribly clear. Like, right. I, I also don't doubt that, like, she literally had this dream of these scenes. So, yeah. I, I, <clears throat> but it's also kind of one of those weird kind of, like, it's almost fate. Right. Like, so this, it, this idea had to come into the world. Yeah, yeah. So it's very interesting. And of course, she had a lot going on in her mind when this was happening, too, because she had already lost a child. So <clears throat> the first four chapters of... She she originally started off by writing a short story. Uh, Percy said, hey, you know, you ought to turn this into a book. So she agrees. First four chapters were written shortly following the death of Fanny in October and November. Um, mm. So obviously the death of Fanny is definitely going to play into this a little bit. Uh, the inciting incident for Victor doing what he does is the death of his mother. Right. Um, however, death would continue to follow this eclectic family, dogged and unrelenting. In December, Percy's first wife, Harriet, was found drowned in a lake in Hyde Park in apparent suicide. God damn. Suicide by drowning? That seems a little... I mean, that, that's... That's how they used to do it. That's why in so many of yep. these Victorian novels, you know, you, you read the depictions of people putting rocks in their dress and walking into the middle of a river. Or a yeah, lake. I was going to say, I've seen that in so many freaking books. Dang, mm-hmm. that just, I don't know, just seems weird and, you know, to hear. Yeah, no. Um, well, it's, it's like, I guess it's, when you don't have any really tall buildings or firearms. Yep. It's either yeah. that or cut your wrists. Or overdose on laudanum, I guess. Yep. There you go. So, it was following this death, and desiring custody of his children with Harriet, that Percy and Mary finally wed a couple of weeks after Harriet's death. Fuck. Now, also, because Mary finally got married, she did manage to reconcile with her father and her stepmother. Oh, Um, good. Now, Claire, meanwhile, would birth her daughter to Byron that following February. And then in September, Mary would give birth to her third child, Clara. Okay, Clara, Claire, Mary, Mary. I'm I'm getting, I'm losing track of whose kid is whose. Like, there's so many names. So many names that sound similar. Who's fucking who. Mm -hmm. This, This is all rapidly becoming the song, I'm My Own Grandpa. It's. (laughs) Because if they're all, if they're all fucking, who knows whose kids, you know, whose. Yeah. Yeah, and, and that's the thing. There's some questions of parentage that pop up from time to time. And maybe Claire was the father of uh, <laughs> of Mary's Mary's kid. Who knows? Who knows? Who knows? It's like Cartman. <laughs> so, um, by the summer of 1817, Frankenstein was finished, and Mary would be 18 years old. Holy shit! Just mm-hmm. 18 and all this already. Fuck. Yeah. So this has all happened in a span of three years, basically. God yeah. damn. Like, now, three now, years, no. Given the status of women at the time, the novel was published anonymously, but most people assumed it was the work of Percy. You know, I'm just going to say 18, the twilight years of life back then. Right? Like, I, what was I even doing at 18 years old? You know what I mean? I, I just remember masturbating and apologizing a lot. I mean, she fucking wrote a novel and had, like, uh, and was pregnant three times. Jesus Christ. Fuck hell. Oh, God. Well, that, damn I guess it. that's what you don't have good contraception. I, d- I hadn't even started doing comics. Right? So, 
the, the problem is they were also <clears throat> pursued by debt collectors, firmly a result of Percy. So the Shelleys, along with Claire and her child, would flee to Italy. Mike, I think that's what we need to do is just flee to Italy. Okay, sure, right. that'll work nowadays. So, so Claire would hand her daughter over to Byron in Venice with the promise to have nothing to do with her. Jeez. So, so there's Fuck. some fucking drama here, too. Damn. So Mary, Percy, and Claire would then travel Europe again, never settling on a place for long. Now, what would be an interesting experience for most was soured, however, by the deaths of the children. God! Mm-hmm. <sighs> Clara, the youngest, died in 1818. William died in June of 1819. That was, that was a bad year. Mm-hmm. That November, however, Mary would have her fourth child. Percy Florence, but would remain haunted for the rest of her life. As you do. Mm-hmm. Now, while there is even more intrigue in their journeys, I want to fast forward a bit here. Okay. And not by much, because we're jumping from 1819 to 1822. Okay. Now, Mary and Percy were on the rocks, and their relationship was strange, uh, was estranged by... Percy's nature and apparent relationship with yet another woman while Mary was pregnant. Mm. Now, Mary would later miscarry, and rather than be there for Mary, Percy spent more time with his new beau. Fucker. Mm-hmm. So, like, their relationship is very fraught at this point. So, in July of 1822, Percy accompanied by Edward Ellicker Williams and Captain Daniel Roberts, took a shiny new boat off the coast of Italy. After a stop to meet with Lord Byron, the three men would sail back home with a boat boy named Charles Vivian aboard what was called the Don Juan, named for the satirical poem of the same name by Lord Byron. I, I just feel like poor old Charles here had a bad time before the end of this voyage. No, I mean, so, here, here's the thing. A storm off the coast of Italy claimed the lives of the men. Percy Shelley died at the age of 29. God damn. Now, it should go without saying that Mary Shelley, now a widow and a great writer in her, her own right, had endured tragedies that would weaken the resolve of most. Her story isn't quite over, but for now, I want to turn some time to the uh, strange and supernatural aspects of her famous novel. However, before that, let's take a break, shall we? Yeah, I feel like we need to take a break to recover from the sheer amount, once again, of child death. And drugs and fucking. Drug fucking. And whatever happened to that poor boat boy? Yeah, there were only three bodies recovered. That's the fucked up part. Oh, yeah. Oh, that's but we'll, bad. we'll get into that later. All right, we'll be right back. And we're back to fucking Stein. <laughs> Mary Christ. fucking Shelley Stein. Yeah, Mary Shelley's fucking Stein. <sighs> featuring Lord Byron. Like, you know, if there are three themes to tonight's episode, it is drugs, sex, and child death. <laughs> Hopefully God. not all at the same time. 
Yeah, God, that'd be that's a bad day. Yeah, right. So, um, now it reminds me of the Gothic novel Vothic. So, not familiar uh, with it. It's it's fitting. So, anyway, um, yeah. So we're back, and we we're going to talk a little bit about some of the stuff in the book. Um, and again, I had mentioned earlier that a lot of this is kind of seeding for future episodes. Aren't you a little Johnny topic seed? Yeah, no, I'm having fun spreading my seed around. Oh, gross. (laughs) Much like Lord Byron. Yeah, I was going to say, you're the Lord Byron of this episode. God, man, can you imagine if I was the Lord Byron of this podcast? Jesus Christ, I wouldn't be talking to you. Incredibly cringy and awkward. (laughs) All right, we're back at David. Get your finger out of my butt. (laughs) Wow, that's pretty good. I got some distance there. Anyway. Yeah, um, I know. Tell a finger (laughs) So... One thing we should address is the sticky issue of authorship of the novel. And I know that it sounds like a pun because of all the bodily fluids yeah, that were the involved. Sticky. Yeah. But um th- there there's been like some interesting stuff about this. So it wasn't until around nineteen twenty three, which was the release of the second you mean edition. 18, right? 1823, yeah. Yeah, sorry. It's same name. No, cool. Fucking numbers, Long night. I hate it. Yeah. Um so it wasn't until around 1823, the release of the second edition of the novel, that Mary Shelley herself was able to claim authorship of her text. Because, again, that first edition was anonymous because, gasp, women can't write books. Are you mad? <laughs> oh, boy. So there is a contingent of people, I call them assholes, who contend <laughs> that a significant portion of Frankenstein was the work of Percy. Now, most likely he had a hand in editing the tale, as he would be an invaluable resource for a writer, being such a prolific writer himself. However, I feel suggesting otherwise, suggesting that he wrote Frankenstein is incredibly and intensely disrespectful. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, read a lot of uh, writers, uh, you know, there's their ephemera around their writing and they're when you when you're a writer you're not just doing it you know in a cabin by yourself there's mm-hmm. you know you have people you yeah. know, reading your stuff and giving feedback and things so that's right. not you know beyond the pale yeah i also want to say i feel like if he made contributions to the text some of them may have been on unwarranted unwanted and undeniable by mary shelley like I mean, she was, after all, a woman, and Percy was probably standing over her shoulder explaining how a pen worked. Right. Uh, like, they, they had a pretty good, like, professional relationship. I Like, obviously... Oh, good. Yeah. Um, you know, there. I read one essay. I don't remember it off the top of my head now what the title was, but someone was pointing out that, like, Percy's contributions were probably less than what an editor would do today. And maybe, who knows, maybe he was just there going, good, yeah, no, this is great, keep going. Yeah, and I mean, all all indications is that he, like, told Mary, like, oh, no, you should make this a book. So, now... You know what, credit for him being supportive there. Yeah, I mean, he, he's a problematic figure in many ways. But, yeah. um, like, again, brilliant man. Um, And he, he really seemed to care about Mary. Like, he... He he had his his frustrating, unequal dalliances. Like if they believe in free love oh, and right. everything like yeah. that, there is that sort of like thing. Well, it needs to be free for both of them. But well, 
that that's an entirely different subject. Now, Frankenstein is often uh, it's often interpreted as being anti-science to a degree. You know, that right. notion of something being Frankensteinian is not positive after all, right? Um, now, what Victor does in the novel may appear to be grotesque and savage to us today, but for the time it was science. So I'm going to re- uh, quote Rebecca Bauman's chapter Mad Science here from that book, Frankenstein at 200. Okay. Quote, But these readings not only tend to ignore the emotional core of the novel, but also grossly oversimplify the role of science in the story. Science fiction, a genre which Frankenstein arguably founded, is not always or often a simple warning to temper scientific exploration with moral caution. Rather, it is a complex mode of writing which can be used for purposes both conservative, science is dangerous and we should be afraid of it, and progressive, Hop on that rocket and explore the wonders of the universe next door, and every nuanced combination thereof. Is the novel a warning of the dangers of science? Don't muck around with your penetrating fingers into the sacred mysteries of a feminized nature? Or is is it a warning to tend to that which you create, however it is created? Now, the novel itself has surprisingly little science in it. It is a science fiction novel to a large degree. Right. But, like, based on our current conception of what science is, there isn't a lot of science. Yeah. It's no Greg Bear novel. Right. Now, I want to note here that Mm. I'm not contradicting my prior point either. Um, Okay. The principles of reanimation as understood through alchemy and galvanism were the science of their time. So, even then, Bauman does bring up a good point, noting the electricity itself doesn't really become linked to Frankenstein until the stage adaptations of the story in 1930 by John L. Balderston and Garrett Fort. However, James Whale's 1931 film adaptation really emphasizes the electrical aspect of the reanimation. If I'm not mistaken, didn't Branna's version also do that? Because there, the, like, there was the scene with the frog's legs and everything, which well, and, are in police. And, and, and I think that um, it's been a while since I saw Branagh's version of Frankenstein. Right. Um, but I think he was doing directly with galvanism there. And galvanism right. isn't quite like electricity in, right. in the sense that no, we're I thinking. Understand. So, yeah. yeah. Think of think of more of you know galvanic skin response, right? And things like, like that, you know? wrapping them up in aluminum foil and rom- rolling yeah. them around on a rug. No, now, not quite that. But <laughs> sorry, but, but you had touched on the uh, the science fiction aspects a minute ago, and it. Like, I've always seen the uh, framing of Frankenstein, especially Mary Shelley's, was more of yeah the uh, the cautionary, you know, not not don't fuck with nature, but, you know, be careful and, you know, mindful of how you fuck with nature. Yeah, yeah, because here's the thing, like, there's an innate curiosity behind Frankenstein as a novel, which is a good thing, but also there, you know, with any form of curiosity, you also need to be cautious. We'll we'll get into that a little bit. But, um, in truth, the creature's creation in the text is rather vague. So, in chapter 4 of the text, Victor Frankenstein describes the discovery of the principle of reanimation as such. Quote, Remember, I am not recording the vision of a madman, 
The sun does not more certainly shine in the heavens than that which I now affirm it's true. Some miracle might have produced it, yet the stages of the discovery were distinct and probable. After days and nights of incredible labor and fatigue, I succeeded in discovering the cause of generation and life. Nay, more, I became capable of bestowing animation upon lifeless matter. That's literally all that we get from Victor right. regarding how he comes across the discovery. Now we can sometimes sometimes you have to play to your ignorance when you're writing. Right. And and the thing is, it's like any good author, you leave a lot to the imagination, right? Sure, yeah. So um and we'll get into like what some of these things are that Victor was potentially messing with, but the actual moment of reanimation is not any clearer in chapter 5 where Victor recalls, quote, it was on a dreary night of November that I beheld the accomplishment of my toils. With an anxiety that almost amounted to agony, I collected the instruments of life around me that I might infuse a spark of being into the lifeless thing that lay at my feet. It was already one in the morning. The rain pattered dismally against the panes, and my candle was nearly burnt out, when, by the glimmer of the half-extinguished light, I saw the dull yellow eye of the creature open. It breathed hard, and convulsed motion agitated its limbs. So, you know, I would posit that the kind of actual well-thought-out science in science fiction is more of a modern conceit. Mm -hmm. Like, look at even Star Trek, the original series Star Trek. You know, they, they had transporters and, you know, warp drive, but there wasn't really any science behind it. Right, right. They, and they a, just kind of just threw out these things that they needed for their story and later nerds figured out how to science it <laughs> Right, because right. with science fiction, the way that I've always seen it and based on some of the classes, yes, I took science fiction literature classes. Um, like science is not, science fiction isn't about the science. It's about what the science effect on society is, what the yeah. science effect <clears throat> on humanity is. And I, and I guess uh, Star Trek is more science fiction than Star Wars, um, but which is still, science fantasy. They're mm-hmm. still both kind of more science fantasy, science fantasy than something like, say, Arthur C. Clarke or The or, Expanse. Well, well, no, see, yeah. I, I, I see Star Trek as very good science fiction because, like, again, it's because of this technology that we have a radically altered society where everything is post scarcity. And it's yeah. about exploration. It literally redefines the human experience, which is good science fiction. Yeah. So, um, getting back to what we have here, what we see is that Mary Shelley is cagey about what this reanimation process is. It's not really important. What we get is some vague notions and fill in the gaps ourselves, if they even need filling. <clears throat> Victor studies the science of chemistry and has an interest in galvanism. That's all we have to work with. Right. And I think, though, that he bought a reagent from a traveling doctor, a Dr. Herbert West. (laughs) Well, and then honestly, Brian Usna's adaptation of Reanimator is a pretty faithful interpretation to what the first (laughs) edition of Frankenstein Reanimation was like, I think. It really is. It's just a green chemical that brings people back from the dead. That's it. Yeah. Yeah. And and then, you know, chemistry at this time was relatively new as a science, uh, more akin to natural philosophy than the science we know today. Um, The notions of a chemist as a thing didn't really start materializing until, like, the um, 
the 17th century, but even then it wasn't like a huge thing for a long time. Yeah, I mean, any at that point, anyone could literally be a chemist if you had some glass shit and you poured it together. Right. And, and then prior to that, we had alchemy, which will be a subject all its own in a future episode. Yeah, I was about to point out alchemy, yeah. then I saw you actually had it there. <laughs> yeah. I'll, I did not do the, I blurted out and beat you to the punch. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I am just want to point out, David, you are making the topic doc longer and longer. No, and I, don't, I don't add to it. You're the one who adds to it, so I'm just yeah, rambling shit off. <laughs> um. <laughs> But again, that's I think that's part of the fun of looking at Frankenstein like this is there's so oh, yeah. many little things that we can jump off of here. Now, absolutely. I should also note that much of Frankenstein, despite being science fiction in many ways, is couched in the terminology and style of gothic horror. Um, the way the creature is addressed and written evokes specters, ghosts and demons fitting the works of uh, Horace Walpole and Anne Radcliffe. So I, I just want to remind us that at, at its heart, this is still very much a ghost story, and that was like the original intent. Right. Yeah, because it's it's a thing that haunts him. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like literally, him. Victor is haunted by his creation, <clears throat> and then Victor chases his creation to the Arctic, and they both presumably die. Um, yeah, yeah. I feel like this would also work as a uh, cautionary tale to uh, deadbeat fathers. Yeah, yeah. There, there's a lot of parental things going on here. Right. Now, galvanism wasn't even mentioned in the original text. Uh, it was edited into the 1831 edition. Now, yeah. Shelley, by the time she began writing the story during that period in Geneva had already had an interest in galvanism as it was a topic of discussion amongst the group, you know, after the orgy, okay. you know, they're talking about like the latest science stuff. But they, but do they have an interest in Calvinism? <laughs> uh, oh. This group? No, definitely not. <laughs> no, no. But I'm just picturing like this, <laughs> this fucking stench of sex in the room and they're all laying around, hopped up on laudanum and somebody's like, so I got electrocute some frog's legs. <laughs> what, just now? No, 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 like a month ago. <laughs> so, um, you know, and, and here's the thing. Like, they all had this interest in science. Um, Percy, being who he was, dabbled in the sciences as a hobby. He was known to have some early equipment, like flasks and right. microscopes. Um, and then Mary was also friends with Sir William Lawrence, who was censured for his pre-Darwinian evolutionary ideas. Oh, they must have strung him up. Uh, no, he just um, was kicked out of like the Royal Academy or whatever it was. Um, he, he wasn't executed. We're, we're beyond you know burning people at the stake at this point, more or less. Okay, but this does remind me of that guy from My Brother Arthur. I didn't come from no monkey! <laughs> so, um... Like, science absolutely pervades the text, but Mary Shelley did a great job of not being very specific, which is why the text works so well. Again, we don't need the reason, we just need the creature. Having a cagey, half-crazed Victor explaining it and refusing to elaborate this uh, further on the sin just makes it work. And like I said, it's, it's the best thing to do if you don't know shit about the science anyway, so... Right. Now, regarding galvanism, however, 
the term is introduced anachronistically in the text. Now, mm. the story of Frankenstein is presumably set in the late 1770s, but the principle of galvanism wasn't really like discovered, and I'm going to put that in quotes, until about 1791 by Luigi Galvani. Or popularized. Yeah, more, yeah, yeah, I think popularized uh, is a better word here. So Galvani's experiments from the 1780s to the 1790s involve lots of dead frogs. Oh, God. A 1792 plate titled De Vibris Electricitatis in Motu Musculari Commentarius um, shows nice. the... Mm-hmm, I, I, I butchered that, but thanks. Um, shows the process of touching a frog's leg with a copper probe resulting in the leg twitching. Now, Galvani assumed this was a form of animal electricity. What was really going on here was an early form of a chemical battery. So have you guys ever heard of a Baghdad battery? That's a mixture of rum and Eric, right? <laughs> no, no. Is that, that's, is that what Saddam Hussein had in a spider hole with him? <laughs> um, no, the, yeah, those, you know, maybe. Those maybe. were ever ready. So the, the Baghdad battery is a uh, set of three artifacts found together. It was yeah. a ceramic tube, a, pot, uh, a ceramic pot, a tube of copper, and a rod of iron. Like it's just basically like a chemical battery. Yeah, yeah and they determined, Mike, you, you can talk about this, but wasn't it like electroplating or something? Yeah, so the, the, the current <clears throat> supposition is that, yes, it, if you put an acidic solution in the uh, jar, it would create a, a very like milliwatt, millivolts of voltage. But if you used enough of them together... The thought is that they could have used it for electroplating, mm-hmm. which is taking one metal and applying another yeah. metal to the outside. So you have you have a, uh, uh, I think it's I think you need a dielectric bath. You need something that's not normally conductive, like you know pure water or something like that. You put in you know on one electrode you have the thing you want plated, and on the other electrode I can't remember, can never remember if it's positive or negative. I think you want it on right. I don't remember. Anyway, the other one you have, you know, the gold or whatever you want to plate with, and the movement of the electrons across will bring the gold or whatever else you want to plate to the other thing. Right. And it doesn't require a whole lot of, I mean, the more power you have, I believe the faster it goes, but you don't need that much voltage to do it. And it could be, you know, when you don't have motors and things, it could be a viable want for uh, batteries. Yeah, and of okay. course, this all came from the aliens. Yeah, oh, of course, you know, humans <laughs> yeah. wouldn't just, you know, think this up or anything. Uh, and yeah. just make sure you don't get your copper rod from Anasir. Yeah, I was going to say, Anasir figured out a way to, like, uh, plate things in gold and rip people off with that, too. <laughs> he was the first cash for gold guy. Right. So, you know, so, like, again, this is cool, but that's the basic principle behind these galvanic, like, jerking motions of right. frog legs. Your now, galvanic jerking right. motion. Of course, early science was a fucking mess, and there were so, so many dead frogs. Kittens, too. God Aww. damn it, David. It's not even a weekend weird. <laughs> so That's my job. <laughs> right. Um, from Bauman, again, quote, some of the experiments that took place during this time were more horrific than anything from the pages of Shelley's novel. 
Of course they were. Frogs were sacrificed in scores in the name of science. Kittens were decapita- uh, decapitated or had oh. their brain cavities filled with silver and zinc oh. and then made to leap and dance with electrical charges. Oh, no. Victor's reference to, quote, torturing the living animal to animate the lifeless clay suggests that may he, he may have performed such experiments as well. Oh, fuck these people. So, this this idea of, like, learning about galvanism and everything like that, um, this was the handiwork of many, but among them was Giovanni Aldini, who was the nephew of Luigi Galvani. So... Giovanni didn't stop there, however, which is like making frogs dance. Right, right, yeah. In 1803, he performed a galvanic experiment on the corpse of George Forster, a man who had been convicted and executed for drowning his wife and child. Okay. Again again from Bauman, quote, Those who witnessed the experiment, and uh, and these endeavors were often pieces of theater as well as science, were horrified yeah. when the dead man's eyes popped open and an arm rose up as if to wave hello. <laughs> Fuck. Right? So, we don't have time to get into the execution culture of the 17th and 18th centuries. Let me put it this way. Schedules were published and people would show up to watch people die. There was nothing else to do. Like, literally the first tailgating parties were people, like, Watching dudes get hung in the town square. Hey man, you going to the execution homecoming? Woo! 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 woo. <laughs> so, so quoting from the Malefactor's Bloody Registry, which is a That's document a that covers all this stuff. Quote: On the first application of the process to the face, the jaws of the deceased criminal began to quiver, and the adjoining muscles were horribly contorted, and then one eye was actually opened. In the subsequent part of the process, the right hand was raised and clenched, and the legs and thighs were set in motion. Fuck. Right? Here's another case. In 1818... So again, this is... Uh, that for, uh, These are both going on while Mary Shelley's alive, and, you know, she, she's going to be book. revising the book right. from here on, right? So, another case. In 1818, Scottish physician Andrew Urey experimented on the corpse of yet another murderer, Matthew Clydesdale. So, I'm quoting Bauman here, who's quoting, uh, who's quoting another source, Roseanne Montillo. Quote, Clydesdale was so horrified at the addition of dissection to his sentence that he tried and nearly succeeded to kill himself in his cell. He slashed his neck and wrists, but they were sewn up just well enough for him to be summarily hanged. Yuri cut open the corpse's yeah. neck and inserted what he called a, quote, minor voltaic battery with one end on the spinal marrow and the other on the sciatic nerve. When the battery was turned on, the results were astounding. The corpse corpse twitched and shuddered as if from cold. The chest heaved, and Yuri himself reported, quote, every muscle in his countenance was simultaneously thrown into fearful action. Rage, horror, despair, anguish, and ghastly smiles united their hideous expression in the murderer's face. His fingers then moved, quote, nimbly, like those of a violin performer, and, quote, he seemed to point out to the different spectators, some of whom thought he had come to life. Dang. Uh, I, have to, I do have to ask one question, though. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, so they're 
were they, were they writing stuff down? Because it's not real science unless you're writing it down. Oh, they wrote it down, dude. Okay, because some of this is coming from you know onlookers, which makes me go, well, why why don't we have what they wrote down? I well, think no, they, they did this it was... so other people could write it. Well, this was also listed in the Malefactor's then... Bloody Registry, which was yep. a record of this stuff. Yeah, but Kevin, if they're not writing it down themselves, it's not actually science. Oh, oh and, you know, and Yuri was a um, uh, a noted scientist. Like, all, all these guys who are doing this shit, that's the fucked up part. They were noted scientists. They were doing important work. And they would write this stuff down. Um, so, yeah, there, there's there's records of this. Then there, I, I have at the top of the document that picture is one of the I, plates. Yeah. I think it's the Forster. Um, oh, yeah, the experiment. one where it looks like the guy with the tiny feet is levitating. And the yeah. demons are watching. Yeah. From being so scared. So, you know... That's all background regarding like the galvanism and like some of the science going on in the story. Um, but that brings us to our next topic, stealing bodies for fun and profit. Now, can we back up for one second? About two weeks ago, weren't you guys trying to fucking convince me that we aren't a terrible species? Jesus Christ, guys. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, dead bodies are dead, you know. I <sighs> look. We, we owe a lot of our uh, modern medical science to the knowledge gained from, you know, corpse robbers. Yeah, yeah, here's the thing. We're speaking from a position of privilege that we don't have to go fucking like throw a corpse out in the middle of the street. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, like these people, it, it's for us, from our position of like privilege, it seems incredibly fucked up to us. But without them doing these things, we don't have this knowledge to live our comfortable, sheltered lives. Okay, fair, but I still don't have to fucking yeah. like it. No, no, I also, mean... Yeah. people are a lot more superstitious, so you're not going to get people donating, you know, their mm-hmm. bodies. Now, yeah. like you do nowadays, you have, you know, plenty of people that donate their bodies. To yeah, your, your grandma donates her body to science and the military straps it to a fucking bomb. Oh, yeah, <laughs> no. You know, they're, you know, in, uh, before we really perfected crash, and even to this day, to, to verify crash test dummies are accurate, they, they crash cars with corpses in them i've i've mm-hmm. heard yeah so you know there there's this kind of fuzzy boundary between life and death um you know the 200 or so years from like the 1700s into the 1800s um mm-hmm. a, a lot of it was the result of a rapidly growing understanding of the mechanics of the body combined with fucked up experiments to understand where life ended and death began Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Now, mm-hmm. morally and educationally, it sometimes felt mm-hmm. like the Wild West, uh, often unregulated, lawless, <laughs> and profitable to source bodies for science if you didn't mind getting your hands dirty. Or someone else's hands, you know, once you're done with them. Yeah, it just reminds me of young Frankenstein where they're moving the body. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Froderick has the... The, the hand. hand. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> oh, yeah. Just go watch bones, Young uh... Frankenstein, goddammit. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I feel like I'm going to watch Young Frankenstein after yeah. this. Um, of course, all of this is all over Mary Shelley's novel. Of course. Now, you guys haven't read the book recently, but do you remember what Victor's principal concern was with gathering the body parts he needed for his creature? Uh... Didn't he need them to be really large? Yeah, it's the same thing like in, um, you know, uh, Young Frankenstein. You know, he would have an enormous yeah. Schwanstuker. 
Yeah, well, I mean, he needed the larger size so he could work with it easier because, mm-hmm. you know, it's a matter of scale. It's easier to see what you're doing with a big yeah. dumb meathead than with, like, a child. So, from chapter four of the novel, quote, Nor could I consider the magnitude and complexity of my plan as any argument of its impracticability. impracticability. It was with these feelings that I began the creation of a human being. As the minuteness of the parts formed a great hindrance to my speed, I resolved, contrary to my first intention, to make the being of a gigantic stature, that is to say, about eight feet in height and proportionably large. After having formed this determination and having spent some months in successfully collecting and arranging my materials, I began. Um, so, the, like, the way that he does this is by going to um, charnel houses. And charnel right. houses being kind of like this midpoint between, uh, like, before you get buried, your body is stored in a charnel house. Right. It's a. It's like a primitive version of what we would call a funeral home today, except it's more of just a place to stack the or bodies. More. It's more like a naturally uh, conditioned meat locker. <laughs> it's a curin shed. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's where you make human jerky. Yeah. Um, so, oh so, God, now I want jerky. So, you know, the, 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 the grim, horrible implication here is that Victor is going into these charnel houses and literally grabbing pieces of people and stitching together this human. And, like, at eight feet tall, which is terrifying. He's, like, stitching the legs. Yeah, I just picture him going... No one questions him as he goes in with, like, a shopping cart. It's like those dudes who break their legs to be taller. Oh, God, fuck. Jesus Christ. Um, <laughs> yeah. Uh, it, it's oh, such gosh. a wonderfully fucked up story, man. You guys need God, to read like this book. It's like Gattaca. You guys need to read this book. I, I hope that, like, yeah. this inspires you to read it. So, um... Now... We're going to be laying the foundation here for a future episode, surprise, surprise, (laughs) about the theft of corpses and early anatomy schools, among which I do want to talk about Burke and Hare. Do you guys know anything about these two gentlemen? I do. Thanks to last podcast and our fake history. And Mm. God is such a fucked up topic. Mike, you familiar with these two assholes? No. Oh, boy. The basic version of their story is that they would commit a series of murders to supply local medical schools in Edinburgh with corpses for anatomical studies. I you mean, know, why why wait if you're a go-getter? Well, and here's the thing. There were so many medical schools in Edinburgh that they were running out of fucking corpses. That's the <clears throat> fucked up part to all of this. They were going through so many fucking bodies that Burke and Hare are just like, well, if we kill them... Yeah, why wait? And also, um, I've not seen it, but there is a movie starring um, Simon Pegg. Um, uh, who, who is it who plays Gollum? Um, uh, Andy Serkis. Andy Serkis as Burke and Hare and directed by, I think, Frank Oz. Oh, we've got to see this shit. Yes, Mike. yes. But, um, but, so I've not also, seen it. Also, you could fill orders, you know, custom orders easier. God, that, you know, that's the other the fucked line. up thing, yeah. yeah. They were, in fact, filling orders, Mike. Well, yeah, no, that's what I'm saying. That's kind of, that's what made a kind of sick sort of sense. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, you're digging up graves. It's like, well, yeah, it's sure it's a woman, but it says she was like 50, but we don't know what she looked like. 
Yeah. Um, and we're, we're going to, uh, like, we're going to do an entire episode on just like fucking body snatching here. Um, oh, yeah. at, at some point, uh, especially cause that'll also let me talk about like my problematic fave, uh, HH Holmes. Oh God. Who, who's another one now, of those. We're going to have to be careful. I don't want to actually start doing serial killers. That, that's the thing. So he, he, he will, yeah, he will be ancillary, you know, it's mostly about like body snatching and that sort of thing. Because okay. again, there is a supernatural element to that because people, would find these bodies disappearing and think like, Oh God, the dead have risen and that sort of thing. Sure. Um, yeah. You know, um, we're, we're, we're kind of expanding and, and trying new things here, you know, try everything yeah. once. Um, so another thing that we should mention is the fact that so much of this experimentation was the result of people trying to figure out how people who were presumed dead were coming back to life in the first place. <laughs> So there's just this very rote underca- uh, understanding of the mechanics of the body. And this whole approach was to understand the body as a machine and why it sometimes seemed to kick back on. Well, they had to turn it back off and then back on again. Right, yeah. right. Yeah, you got to hit that switch. So, body by Microsoft. Yep. <laughs> um, this was particularly common with drownings, as there are a lot of historical records that discuss people who were declared drowned, but would later come to in all sorts of fucked up circumstances, such as in their own coffins. Oh boy. Now, when we eventually cover vampires, we'll discuss a lot of the strange pattern of historical records of the seemingly dead returning to the life. Um, because, again, that's, you know, they, they would find that... Um, they would believe that some of these people came back to life with vampires or reanimants right. of some form. Yeah. Now, all of this Rogers resulted... something. Yeah, exactly. Um, this all resulted in a whole cottage industry of devices and techniques to provide the dead with a way to signal that they were alive. For example, we'll talk about the creation of the safety coffin at some point. <laughs> Yeah, you know, they had, like, bells or megaphones or the tortured scraping of fingernails on wood. <laughs> like, it's incredibly fucked up and horrid. And, I mean, yeah. if we if we want to draw other literary parallels, Edgar Allan Poe wrote several stories about people being buried alive. Literally, one is titled The Premature Burial. And in modern parlance, back in the 90s, there was a series of films on USA, the Buried Alive films. It was about this exact subject. Mm-hmm. So, a lot of this ambiguity of who was dead or not does play out thematically in Mary Shelley's novel. Um, Victor's methods, as fucked as they were, were not outside of the presumable norm. You got people snatching up bodies. You got people right. making herky-jerky human puppets. <laughs> this this that's the thing about frankenstein at this time entirely fucking plausible right that some guy would do this shit so um so these weren't outside the presumable norm uh norm nor was this uh the, the search for that spark of existence because so much of the understanding of the function of life was considered on those very those very terms, like the idea of the animus of a person. Right. That like there's a spark to a person. And also, you know, just they. I'm assuming, like, I don't know specifics of the uh, state of the art at the time, but I'm a. I think they're basically just you know holding a mirror under someone's nose or 
you know, putting their ear to a chest to try to hear a heartbeat. And if it's, you know, if the breathing's shallow enough or the breathing's faint or the heartbeat's faint enough, you know, they're just not going to detect it without, That's exactly it, too. Stethoscope. Yeah. That's exactly it, too. You know, and and I know for, sorry, I was going to say, I know for a fact they used to, like, prick them in the foot with with a needle or something. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Some someone's in, you know, coma mildly comatose. Mm-hmm. That's not gonna do it. If you're a really fucking heavy sleeper, you might wake up in a coffin. Yeah. yeah. Oh dude. Oh, you're yeah. dead, Mike. Well, you're no, fucking I dead. snore too much. Well, you okay, know, that's true. And here here's the other thing, like, this is maybe a couple hundred years after we started th- uh, after we stopped throwing our shit out the window into the street. Yeah. Like <clears> so <throat> again, throat> this is a very weird fucking time. Yeah. Yep. You know, but um, we're, we're going to dive into another mad science topic, but I, I think we should take another break. How do you guys feel about yeah, that? Yeah, I think so. Okay. All right, we'll be right back. All right, and we are back. All right, gentlemen. So when we think of the concept of a mad scientist, what is one of the first things that pops into your head? Ed Wood's filmmaking process. <laughs> um, no, no, I mean, the, 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 I think the most archetypal in my mind, of course, is a uh, Doc Brown from uh, Back to the Future. Ooh, mm, good point. Yeah, no. Um, I'm sure we can name a dozen examples, but one that nearly always comes up is Victor Frankenstein. Right, right your prototype <clears throat> mad scientist, mm-hmm. as it were. Now, now, granted that this is more because of the influence of James Whale's 1931 film, but, um, yeah, I'd, I'd argue that the role of Victor Frankenstein of the novel serves this role pretty well. Well, I mean, the guy did build a dude, and he was nuts. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, so, part of Frankenstein's adaptations is a kind of, like, technological edge that isn't really present in the book but works its way into countless retellings and interpretations and conveys like an apprehension of society to the darker side of technology and science you know um we'll probably have a new frankenstein movie in the next two years with like a clumsy metaphor about the dangers of unregulated artificial intelligence for example no franken gpt honestly i would watch it i would watch it (laughs) Um, oh, yeah, uh, Franken GPT though will be better than Frankencoin. Oh <laughs> God, the, fr- the Franken blockchain. Mm-hmm. So, with all the swapping of body parts and fitting corpses together like a fucked up jigsaw <laughs> or Lego, um, right? I would be remiss if we didn't at least bring up the topic of allotransplantation. Do you guys know what that is? I have no idea what the fuck that is unless it involves Allosaurus. <laughs> I mean, no, that would be Xenotransplantation, but we'll get to that. But like, do, oh. do you guys have any idea what that is? I, uh, allotransplantation? Literally, I literally have no idea what Allotransplantation is. Is that where you okay. take aloe from one pot to another? <laughs> no, no. So, like, the basic idea is... Um, like grafting biological material from one host to another um you know so like a heart transplant is kind of a form of that oh um, okay so it's like just... a skin graft yeah um body part swapping yeah so 
it, it has its practical applications, of course. But let's talk about brain swapping. Hell yeah! Yeah, we're going to enter Mystery Science Theater 3000 territory, and yeah. this it, this is the idea behind the brain that wouldn't die. Fuck yeah, Jan in the pan, bitch. Mm-hmm. So, so this concept of, like, organ harvesting, brain swapping, and more makes up, like, 40 movies shown on that show. Yes, it um, does. And then, hell, we can even talk about xenotransplantation in that regard, and that is the <clears throat> transplantation between species. Yeah. yeah. So if you give someone a pig heart for example. Okay. And that whole thing has, like, uh, like this transplantation idea has that kind of Frankensteinian <clears throat> element to it. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So, stealing body parts and organs and shoving them somewhere else um, or in someone else is one of those, like, weird pop cultural elements that we could trace back directly to Mary Shelley's book, which is pretty fun to think about. Oh, yeah. And, one, you know, one, uh, one that mm-hmm. it brings to mind for me is uh, Robert Heinlein's, um, oh, what was the name of that book? I don't remember the name. But anyway, there's like a, an old man who uh, whose secretary ends up, uh, like some, get, something happens and she's like brain damaged, like an accident. And he he's dying and i guess her from her will or something she wanted to donate her body but he ends up his brain getting transplanted into her body and so mm-hmm. it's a very you know looking at looking at it now it's probably very clumsy but for the time when it was written probably like the 60s or 70s you know it was this mm-hmm. exploration of you know a man that basically all of a sudden woke up as a woman and you know what all that would entail interesting yeah, um, yeah, I yeah, I'd have to look up the name of that. Yeah, we'll we'll get to that. Yeah, but yeah that, that's, that, that's I, cool though. But yeah, no, that, that is that was cool. Me. So so you know, with that said, I think allotransplantation is something we could talk about in like a larger weird science topic. So I, again, I don't want to dive too far into it. There's almost like a a buffet, a sampler of all these little things yeah. that we can pick out from just one source here, right? Right. Um, Mainly because the connection here is just like a tenuous one regarding mad science, as inspired by popular readings and interpretations of Mary Shelley's story. Right. So, again, this is more related to how Shelley's story has been interpreted over the centuries, but the creature is often depicted as a cyborg as well. Hmm. Well, yeah. Um, yeah, Especially you think about the movie version with, like, the bolts in his neck and everything like that. Right, right, right. Uh, what is it that you gentlemen understand about what a cyborg is? Silverhawks. <laughs> Silverhawks. Well, it's any <clears throat> combination of, uh, of, I guess, human technically, but you know, also any you know animal with uh, modified with technology. Um, right. In in looser terms, you know, uh, we've talked about before with uh, my local friends and stuff. Kevin and I, mm-hmm. that we're basically already cyborgs because, you know, we're carrying around a computer all the time. It's our mm-hmm. cyber brain. Yeah. Yeah. No, and, and that, that's pretty that's pretty good. Like, we're, we're going to get into the weeds a little bit here. We're not going, like, neck high. We're going maybe nipple high here. Okay. Um, because I'm getting into a little literary theory, uh, which is super fascinating. Um, I'm not going to, like, overburden us with it, but I, I think it is, is worth mentioning. 
Um, okay. So this is where my lit major comes in, and I am finding the urge to really talk about Donna Haraway's cyborg manifesto at length. Hmm. Now, Haraway's notion of the cyborg is primarily an apparatus to understand and challenge perceptions of feminism through a socialist lens. Do fucking what now? Yeah, I kind of went cross-eyed there myself. Yeah, it's uh, like when you read it, it makes a lot more sense. And I'm going to kind of give you a very basic crash course. Like this all relates to Frankenstein. But um, like, again, this is if I do that spinoff show, this is what the spinoff show is going to be. So here's the real litmus test for everyone. Um, So at heart, Haraway's essay explores three major transgressive boundaries and how the nature of these transgressions leads to questioning binaries that we have come to expect and internalize in life. You know, we we kind of look at the world as like black and white, male, female, like collectively, socially, that sort of thing. Um, So these boundaries that she mentions are human-animal, human technology, and physical and uh, and non-physical. Kind of like a cyber brain thing. Mm-hmm. Yes. So this larger cyborg theory is also fitting in understanding Mary Shelley's creature, given Shelley's background and own perspectives at the time. However, there are also strong arguments that the creature may not necessarily even work as an example of Haraway's cyborg. It's it's very complicated. Yeah. Like, you know, so if, uh, if someone is modified with, you know, biological technology, is that a cyborg? Mm-hmm. Like, say, say if you... A meat gun grafted to well, your no, arm. Or just something even even more plausible. Say, with genetic therapy, mm-hmm. you were able to modify your eyes to work more like, say, an eagle's eyes or a cat's eyes. Mm-hmm. You're, you're obviously now more than just human, but are you now a cyborg or not? Yeah. Yeah, that, that's getting this whole thing of post-humanism, which is a right. fascinating subject. We'll so, tackle that. And, and I find that a lot more plausible than actual cyber cybernetics because mm-hmm. there's a lot of like problems when you try start trying oh, to Oh, yeah, stick, rejection, you know, body yeah, rejection yeah, of stuff. Yeah. Sticking, I know, mean, we, we can barely get human bodies to accept other human body parts. Yeah. Right. Um, but, you know, you, so, so you can see how, like, you can, you can interpret the creature in the novel as being a cyborg. Mm-hmm. Also, possibly not. And right, yeah. the nature of this creature being simultaneously dead and alive, again, transgressing a very strong binary in our existence. Right. Um, and, you know, and then also, like, Victor himself is transgressing a binary because he is a male figure, but he becomes feminized by giving birth right. to something. Okay, um, yeah, I so see it does now. does Victor become a cyborg to a degree because of this transgression in the boundaries? And like it's so so here's the thing. There is a whole basket of bees surrounding this essay. <laughs> yeah. You know, and as with any good essay worth studying, right? Yeah. So I, I just can't get into it fully here. We don't have the time for that, nor have I had the time to fully reacquaint myself with it since studying it like four years ago. Okay. Right? Um, so he more like, trans, it, it transgresses the boundary between man and God. Yeah, Ooh, yeah, exactly. The physical and non-physical. Yeah. So there's a lot of interesting stuff here. 
And uh, again, that's just how impactful this book is. So when we talk about, uh, here's the thing, this is all fucking post-humanism, man. It is a lot. It, it, it is a is. lot to deal with. Um, so, so when we talk about the creature being a cyborg, it kind of depends on which version you're talking about and what your interpretation of the cyborg is. It's all fucking relative. Right. And if anything, I'd say he's a meat cyborg, which really kind of makes me want to start grafting ham onto Mike as an experiment. <laughs> no, no, he's a flesh golem. A, a meat golem. Right. No, he's, he's literally a meat golem. So, Mike, when you wake up with strips of bacon attached to your chest, <laughs> don't, don't ask it. questions. I'm just going to eat it. Okay, that's it, cool. It's just, it's just a nude mic on the table instead of sushi. It's bacon. Co- covered with products. Pretty much, that's it, Mike. You're just going to have cut up pork on you. Something. You're going to be like, Kevin's going to be like a uh, yuppie businessman in the 1980s. Like a Yakuza. <laughs> yeah. You know, what, um, you know what I have to say to that? Gabagool. <laughs> you and your gabagool. Oh, man. You know, but hey, since we keep adding potential episode topics down the line, I feel like we can throw cyborgs in there. Why the hell not? Fuck it. Right? Fuck it. We'll add it. Um, so. <laughs> Fuck it. Know, we live. Here, here's all these, like, interesting things that we're kind of pulling out of the novel, but let's, let's, um, we're going to wrap up by getting back to Mary Shelley. All yeah, right? let's see what happened after she finished the book. So, you know, again, there's still just so much I could talk about here. I haven't even brought up the connections to the expeditions of the Northwest Passage, which frame the novel. Um, Another topic we might eventually cover, because there are some possible supernatural and weird elements related to those Arctic expeditions. So many lost fucking ships that keep getting Mm -hmm. sighted to this day. I I think it was one of our first weekend weirds where we brought up that um, boat that was discovered. Remarkably well preserved, yeah. So, Mm -hmm. um, but for now, yeah, let's turn back to Mary Shelley. So, things did not get much easier for Mary Shelley after the death of her husband. Never would have guessed. Mm hmm. She continued to write and publish, and eventually it became known that Frankenstein was her work and not that of Byron or Percy, because there were also people saying that it was the work of Lord Byron. Oh, of course. That's like uh, Bacon writing Shakespeare. Mm hmm. So, we should take note that the story of Frankenstein is, you know, also haunted by the specter of dead children. We've mentioned a lot of dead children in this episode. We really, I think it's a record. Is, I think it's a record for us. I think um, so, and it's it's worse than the the animals. Yeah, and you know, death haunted Mary Shelley, and the tale of an unwitting parent who abandons his child, grotesque as it is, is kind of like the strange funhouse mirror of her own loss and desire for children that were taken from her too soon. Obviously. Yeah, so, you know, Victor abandons his child. Meanwhile, Mary just wanted her child. There's this very tragic, um, like, journal entry from her where she describes a dream where she was, like, suckling the child, and it died, and she was able to reanimate it by rubbing its chest. It's very heartbreaking. But, you know, it just, you, you see that there's that element to all of this. Now, you know, there, there's, there are people who question this. Um, so I, I have a segment here from Ruth Franklin's essay, Was Frankenstein Really About Childbirth? Quote, Not only was Mary Shelley pregnant during much of the period that she was writing Frankenstein, but she had already suffered the birth and death of an infant. 
Unsurprisingly, she was tormented by the loss. A journal entry in 1815 reads, oh, and this is what I was just talking about, quote, Dream that my little baby came to life again, that it had only been cold and we rubbed it before the fire and it lives. The Echoes of Frankenstein, in which the scientist who hopes to, quote, infuse a spark of being into the lifeless thing that lay at my feet, at last sees it open its eyes and breathe, are unmistakable. And the birth of the creature, as he calls it at first, occurs only after days and nights of incredible labor and fatigue. Later, he refers to it as a painful labor. Should I tell a joke now? Or, I mean... Right. Jesus. It's, it's, I mean, this is heavy shit, man. Like, this this book, yeah. in a lot of ways, is like therapy. And uh, it's Mike, therapy for noise. shit. Right, yeah. Someone make a fart noise, please. Thank you. But, but I'd say also, you know, I'm assuming the the character of Victor was male just because that's probably what was expected of the time. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah. Like, I've, if, if she had completely had her, you know, druthers, maybe the character mm. would have been a woman. Well, and here's the thing. If I, if I were to do, like, the literary analysis version of the show, we could talk about the feminized Victor. You know, how Victor yeah. is portrayed as essentially a woman through most of the book. Right. Yeah. Um, but, you know, again, that's a different version of the show. So... <laughs> By the time she wrote her introduction for the 1831 edition of the novel, Mary Shelley had survived six pregnancies and the death of four children. Jesus. God fucking damn, dude. Right? How could these things not haunt her and inform the story? Oh, God. Here's the other thing. By 1831, Percy, Byron, and Polidori were all gone as well. The three men she was there with. And they were all daisy-chained into one coffin. Fuck. <laughs> more, more like, like the most dramatic in, thing they can do. You know, man trained in one coffin. Yep, just railing into eternity. Oh my god. So, um, well, uh, Percy, we'll get into that. Percy would not have been able to have been um, included in a coffin, and we'll get to that. Um, uh, yeah, it's okay. Yeah. So, you know, Frankenstein, it's a strange time capsule in many ways. Um, through its eventual revisions by Mary Shelley, it reflects rapid change in society and how radically her life had changed 30 or so years from, like, or like when she wrote it. You know what I mean? Because she, she writes this thing at 18. Uh-huh. She starts revising it in, like, her, her 40s. Yeah. This is the Star Wars special edition of Classic Lit. <laughs> did, did she um, add a... Did she add some like big lizards that they were yep. people were riding? There are dewbacks. She had a job of the hut back and, in. And, and, uh, they had a whole f- dance number at Jabba's palace. And, and, the, oh, and yeah. the monster shot first. And then they took the Yub Nub song out. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So yeah, now I'm sad about the Yub Nub song. Same. Yeah. So there was inevitably a period of depression following the death of Percy. Um, you get the sense that, like, Mary was depressed most of her life. Right. Um, however, the pain did fade to where she would continue to write and edit, often collecting and releasing the posthumous work of loved ones, such as Percy and her father, William Godwin. You know what, Um, that's actually kind of sweet. Yeah, just maintaining this kind of legacy, you know. She was devoted to Percy. You know, you get the sense that Percy was devoted to her despite, you know, his wandering dick. (laughs) 
Um, <laughs> is that like the song Detachable Penis, Wandering right, Dick? Right, right, I got a right. case of the wandering dick. <laughs> yeah, any port in a storm. Oh, um, God. Any port in a wine. Right. Oh. <laughs> so, because we can't have nice things for successful women, Mary Ugh. dealt with a series of blackmailers in the 1840s. Fuck. Normally, uh, so so notably, she would buy a series of letters purportedly written by herself and Percy B. Shelley from a man who claimed to be the illegitimate son of the late Lord Byron. Look, I'm sorry, but if a couple has private letters about sniffing each other's farts, I mean, they're married. Who cares? It, if you expect, like, chaste letters between a married couple that, like, raw dogs it all the time... <laughs> That's on you. Yeah, but but the scandal, Kevin. The scandal. Oh, the we scandal live in a of... society. Okay, fuck you, Joker. <laughs> I mean that that's literally what it comes down to. But yeah, yeah. like the idea of, of of an illegitimate son of Lord Byron color me fucking shocked. Yeah, I never would have guessed. You know, and like I can't stress enough how much Mary loved Percy and how committed she was to defending his legacy. And we'll get to that ultimate expression in a few moments. I have just, like, one little tale at the end I, I'm going to give us. And I've actually heard this tale, and I don't know if Mike has, but I can't wait for him to hear it. Mm-hmm. So, Mary's final years were racked by illness. She would suffer from headaches and paralysis so debilitating that it would keep her from reading and writing, which has got to be unbearable to someone like her. Oh, yeah. And in 1851... She died from what was likely a brain tumor. God damn! Right? It's not a tumor, okay? It, no, is, a it tumor. is a fucking tumor, Mike. Yeah, it was probably a tumor. So, <laughs> however, death would not be a reprieve from indignity for the late great Mary Shelley. What did Byron cr- climb out of the grave and dig her up? <laughs> right. Um. No, so her wishes were to be buried near her mother and father, but those were ignored. Instead, her son Percy Florence and his wife chose to bury her near their home. Mm, so they could charge now, two bits of gander. Nah, it wasn't that bad. It, you know, it's kind of sweet, but then also like... Respect Listen to your mama. Yeah, just bury her next to her parents. <clears throat> now, now they would eventually exhume and bury Mary's parents near her, near their home, but just like, again, just bury her near her parents, like she originally asked. Jesus Christ. You know, I kind of either want to be buried in the woods wrapped in a shroud or eaten. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. By bears? No, <laughs> you and kid. Uh, so, so a bear? Yeah, okay, fair. <laughs> I want, basically, I want to be grokked in fullness. There you back go. Back to Heinlein. Mm-hmm. We'll just We'll just shave a slice off you and, like, boil you and boil it in some water and drink it. You're going to yeah, make a do broth the, out of me? Yeah, Kevin broth. Just do okay. the whole Michael Crichton eaters of the dead thing? Get, get your power by eating you. Yeah, yeah, I mean, that's grokking in fullness, man. Yep. Stranger in a strange so, land. Eat my brain, gain my knowledge. <laughs> yeah, secondly, upon her death, Percy Florence took to sanitizing the image of his mother to fit in with this Victorian era. Oh. After all, Mary Shelley did not fit the traditional and expected role of women. No kidding. Women aren't allowed to be sexual, apparently. Yeah. Nope. Nope. They don't get raw dog by Lord Byron. Nope. I just, 
I just I I love that whole Kate Beaton thing of like Mary Shelley just being bored with it all. Yeah. That, that's how I picture her. That's my head canon for Mary Shelley. Yeah, just, just, she's a, she's a, she's a heart of vagrant character on Laudanum. Mm-hmm. So, her surviving family and social circle strove to censor elements of her biography and history, which ultimately did a couple centuries of damage to her reputation, masking how radical and revolutionary a figure she was. So she basically got William Godwin, because William. Yeah, her father, William, did the same thing to her mother, Mary Wollstonecraft. Motherfuckers. So, so didn't these, haven't these people ever heard of the Streisand effect? Oh, wait, no, they didn't, of course. No. <laughs> yeah. It was way yeah. before their time. Mm-hmm. I know, it was a joke. So, thankfully, today, we have a more complex and rounded picture of this remarkable author. For a long time, there was a tendency to view Mary Shelley as Percy Shelley's wife and the author of Frankenstein, and that was it who she is and her our understanding of her remarkable life has been significantly expanded on in the last you know half century and we're all the better collectively for it you know i honestly didn't know the extent of all this until say the last 10 years or so so it's good we're finally getting the whole picture yeah you know i had forgotten about uh percy shelley so if you'd asked me who percy shelley was before this i would have been like don't know because I didn't remember him writing. Uh, <laughs> Michael, I've been like, I don't know, Mary Shelley's <laughs> husband, yeah, which is a complete yeah. turnaround. But yeah, Mary mm-hmm. Shelley, of course, I know who fucking Mary Shelley is. Yeah, you know, and it, it's again, it's like didn't know all I, this just, about her, but you know, I, I'm just so happy that like, like because I I love Frankenstein, I love Mary Shelley, I've read a lot of her work, um, not all of it. Like again, like how I, I don't have the fucking time to read very much anymore, except if it's research for the show. But, like, again, I'm just, I'm happy that she's getting her due. Agreed. So, to wrap all this up, I want to bring up one poignant, unusual anecdote that just kind of, I think, ties everything together and says everything we need to know about this, this remarkable woman. Yeah, Mike, think of this as the bow on the Christmas present that is this episode. As with most of her adult life, this story about Mary Shelley is linked heavily to her relationship with Percy, and I think serves as the ultimate image of how deeply she cared for them, uh, for him. Like they're mm-hmm. these two are inseparable even in death. Mm-hmm. While going through the personal effects of Mary Shelley following her death, Percy Florence and his wife discovered a lockbox. In it were locks of child hair. And a curious artifact, the calcified heart of Percy Shelley, wrapped in a copy of his poem, Adonis. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so, we're, we're going back to 1822 here. Okay. Upon the discovery of the bodies from the wreck of the Don Juan, Lord Byron, Edward Trelawney, and Leigh Hunt opted to cremate the recovered remains. This was partially due to Italian quarantine laws, because, again, the plague is still kind of a factor at this point. Right. But also because it was dramatic as fuck, and these people loved their poetic drama. Oh, yeah, man. Yeah, right. back, back in those days when you could just, like, arbitrarily cremate some motherfuckers and not mm-hmm. you know, raise any kind of eyebrows. Now, 
it seems that cremation was not enough to erase the traces of Percy Shelley from this world, however, as it appears <laughs> that his heart survived the process. One theory is that a bout with tuberculosis was part of the reason that his heart didn't quite burn away. His heart had essentially, <laughs> like, scarred over because of tuberculosis, Fuck. and that scarring helped pres to preserve his heart. You know, he probably wouldn't have lived that long if he had survived the boat anyway, accident. Yeah. Like, literally, Mary died at, like, 54 or 56. Like, these people do not live long. They, yeah, they, they're, like, the real-life victims of the, uh, the mortality rate numbers. Right. You know, fuck now, all the dying babies. They really didn't make it. Now, now, Lee, uh, Lay Hunt, seeing the unburnt heart, would reach into the pyre to claim it, burning himself in the process. This heart would eventually be given to Mary, whose son, Percy Florence, later discovered it following her death. I cannot stress enough how badass this part of the story is. Like, it, so, it, it really is amazing. <laughs> so, all this, all I'm hearing is that everything surrounding Frankenstein sounds a lot more interesting than the book, the book itself. Well, here's, in, in the defense of the Not book, lot, you haven't but... fucking read it, so. Well, oh, I, okay, I, I have. Mike has. Like, you know, oh, it's you been have? forever. Remember I said I did, oh. I believe. I'm okay. the one who didn't. Oh, okay, okay. Well, I mean, definitely read the book now with a little of this biography in your mind and, and see what that does. Like, I looked on, uh, on, uh, what's the site? What with books? Goodreads? No, oh, uh, 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 Project Gutenberg. Gutenberg, yeah. Mm -hmm. While, you know, we were starting and I looked through it and I read some excerpts and it's like, that seems kind of familiar. But like mm -hmm. I said, it was, you know, it was high school. That was the yeah. fucking 20 years ago. More than 20, 30 years ago, even. So yeah. It didn't stick around. But, and I, I don't mean that as a dig to the book. I'm yeah. just saying, you know, you know, there's, it, it kind of gives me an idea of like, what if there was like uh say a movie that was about you know all this and her life mm -hmm. kind of framed around also the telling of the or maybe even a show the telling of the uh the Frankenstein story like i i feel like there's probably been a really good biopic about Mary Shelley and and her relationship with Percy like somewhere i've not seen it but i feel like there is one and if there isn't why the fuck is there not one well, I, I if it the, hasn't been written by Kate Beaton, I don't know if I want it. <laughs> so I, I think one reason it probably hasn't been is uh, because she was freaking 16 and 17 during the, the Wattbuck Wildest parts of it. That's yeah, fair. The, yeah, I mean, this was a different time. A yes. very different oh, time. Oh, yeah. Um, but, you know, with that... We've reached the end of our foray into the weird life and times of Mary Wollstonecraft Shelley and her iconic tale of Frankenstein. So, what did you guys think? So, you might have to pull my soapbox out for a second, guys. Yeah, go okay. for it. Uh, just make sure you dust it off first. Make sure you don't. All right. Yeah, well, it gets regular use, I think. But <laughs> I feel like... We I, I feel like... Women have always been a had a massive role in the world of genre fiction. Mm -hmm. And the more recent attempts to downplay this is stupid. Mm -hmm. You know who was one of the most prolific Star Trek screenwriters? Mm. DC Fontana. She was a woman, and she used DC so people wouldn't reject her scripts because she was a woman. 
I'm saying that if you were to cut women from science fiction, fantasy, and horror, you would not have those fucking genres. I, I'm wondering where you're seeing a uh, a attempt, recent attempts to downplay it. You're you're not going to the same Reddits I'm going to. Well, of course there's going to be those on Reddits, but you know, and, as, as a and as certain a, authors, yeah, but are trying real damn hard. But I'd say they're the minority voices, and they don't really matter. Yeah, it, it, women are really good at writing horror because being a woman can be horrible. <laughs> you write what you like, know. And, and, you know, yeah. and I, I, I'm, I'm not trying to necessarily be funny. Like it is kind of funny, but like I, I feel like a lot of women would would like be like, no, no, that's that's pretty accurate. Um. Just yeah, then again, you know, this is me as a dude like talking about this. You know what I mean? So what the fuck do I know? But oh yeah, and you know, there aspects of you know a woman's life that lead to where they're more vulnerable to certain things. Yeah. For it, you know, they know horror more in you mm-hmm. know, certain ways. Then maybe it makes them. It makes it more. When you know, when you experience something, it's easier sometimes to convey it or, you yeah. know, to, you know, invoke that. You know, yeah. Like I said, write what you know. You're, you know, I'll, I'm always very dubious of people that, you know, want to write and have zero life experience. Mm. Yeah. 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 And it's just like, I, I wanted to write when I was, you know, a teenager. It's like, and I didn't know dick about shit. So. Yeah. Yeah, but you made up for it with balls. Balls. Like I didn't ha- I didn't know how to draw ninety percent of the things I did in Coda's world, but I yeah. had the balls to do it anyway and well, figure it out. Well, you know, drawing's a, a little different because you know I'm talking about just actual you know writing takes experience. If you don't have an experience to anything, you can't write effectively. Sure. No, I understand. Yeah. But, you know, I, that that's our Halloween special, guys. Our slightly delayed Halloween special. But, God, that was a big one, and it was well-written, and it was pretty fun. Mike, did you enjoy yourself? Yeah. Also, just a th- thought, well, Mary Shelley was only, like, 18 when she wrote it. But then again, she did a lot more living than, say, most 30-year-olds nowadays. Oh, yeah. Right, well, it, it, it's like looking at photos of, like, um, you know, uh, like our, our grandparents, you know what I mean? There's a picture of them in their 20s, and they look like they've been smoking cigarettes for 30 years. And yeah. Oh, yeah, no, my dad looked like George Papard in his 20s. Yeah, when, you, when, you're, when you're 18, you've already, you know, lost your first child. Yeah, you've done a lot of living. Oh, yeah. <coughs> yeah, it, it, she had lived so much in her first 18 years. Like, she did more than I've done in 40-something. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> Definitely did more laudanum and uh, dudes than you. Well, yeah, anybody has done more dudes well, than me. Well, well, here's the thing. There's still time for you, Kevin. There's yeah. still hope. Really? Could, could get yeah. on. You get busy living or get busy dying. Mike, and besides, we, we have something better than laudanum now. We have fentanyl, so. Oh, yeah. <laughs> just, All just hail get, the opioid crisis. Just loads of, loads of fentanyl just fucking suck your way across the southern United States. There you go. <laughs> there you go. That's Kevin. <laughs> the next 20 years of your life, I mapped it out for you. Well, you know, if it's, Kevin, fuck train if, Heyman. If it's fentanyl, it'd be more like the next 20, you know, months 20 of minutes. his life. <laughs> 
Oh, God. So that's it for this week. <laughs> God, that was a good one, though. Mm. Um, thank you for that, David. And uh, let us know what you think about this episode. Uh, in uh, If you're on, listening on Spotify, you can let us know there. You can let us know in the Discord or let us know via the contact form at supernatpod.rocks. Speaking of supernatpod.rocks, you can go there and find links to our Patreon, our store, which has the new shirts in it. You can find a link to our Discord and join our lovely family there of uh, fellow freaks. And, uh, again, thank you, everyone, for listening. You're all mm-hmm. awesome. We really appreciate it. Mm-hmm. So, uh, David, you got anything to plug? Um, yeah, if you're interested in another episode like this or maybe, like, me moving into doing some, like, occasional literary episodes like let us know yeah i would i would love to do like i had a ton of fun doing this one like um the the scramble to finish it up this morning certainly was an event (laughs) with six cups of coffee but uh worth it worth it yep oh that's great were you uh did you start to you know move through time unlike other people it felt like it It philip j fry moment yeah yeah <laughs> Why is my coffee shaking? I don't want my coffee shaking. Yes. <laughs> Mike, have you got anything to plug? Um No, um not really. Um if you're in our Discord, I'm going to post that Byron game in there to for you to gander at. Yeah. Cuz it's You'll, you'll we like talk it. so much about Byron. You, I didn't understand a lot of the references in this mm. uh, sheet until I, uh, until this episode. Mm. Yep. There's also <laughs> a really good uh, podcast uh, Dusty's listening to called Betwixt the Sheets. That's about uh, historical sexy times, and they mm. have an episode on Byron. I'm going to listen to so. Mm. So check that out as well. Oh, you know what? Also, I guess Robert Evans just recently did an episode on like Dracula on uh, Behind the oh, Masters, hey. but I guess I guess they also bring up Lord Byron, so you know that's of course a happy little do. coincidence. Yeah, well, you have to, I guess. Yeah. All right. Well, that is it. We will see you next week for Weekend Weird, and after that, episode one hundred. A hundred. A hundred. So until next time, everybody, stay safe and stay frosty. Goodbye. Do you think he used his club foot on Mary? You know, I was thinking that the whole time that, like, there was stump fucking. (laughs) It's just like that scene in Scary Movie with Chris Elliott's deformed hand. Grab my good hand. Yes, exactly. God, I hate that so much. Not the movie, just that hand.